Whitney Webb uh, with Unlimited Hangout, and welcome to our new video series, Dump Davos. Uh, I am joined, uh, I'm going to be joined throughout this series with Johnny Vedmore, who is a contributor to Unlimited Hangout. So I'll let Johnny say, uh, introduce himself a little bit, and then we'll uh, get going in this uh, first episode on the World Economic Forum and all of their nefarious agendas. Hello, I'm Johnny Vedmore. I, uh, I used to be a hotel worker and a musician, but unfortunately, <laughs> the global elite wouldn't let me do that. They decided that they were going to do their the skullduggery or whatever you'd call it. And, uh, and so now I'm a writer and I investigate bad people for doing bad things. And there's a lot of them out there. Um, what we're going to see today is a special presentation from Yuval Noah Harari. Now, um, I, I've listened to Yuval Noah Harari before on a few occasions, like Russell Brand podcast and stuff, where Russell Brand offers in the gatekeepers of society and, and has a good discussion about how we're all going to die eventually in the future. and We should be spiritual now and chill out about it um Yuval Noah Harari I've always seen him as someone who doesn't seem that sinister he's very well spoken he's a, a professor head of history at Jerusalem University um he's written a lot of books like Homo Deus Homo Sapiens um uh, lots of lo he, he's he's a well-spoken fella he can put a, a sentence together and he knows what he's saying so be careful to listen to his words and know this is a man who's written multiple award-winning books and knows what he's saying he's pre-written this speech so it's really important to understand and digest how he's putting across his arguments during this uh uh speech he's doing to the World Economic Forum in Davos in 2020, last year. Um, you're going to first be uh, seeing the uh, person presenting, um, the two speakers. The the two speakers will be involved, Noval Yu, uh, Yuval Noah Harari and um, Mark Rutte, who's uh, the Prime Minister of Netherlands. I'll speak about him in a sec. Um, you're going to be introduced by Orit Gadiesh, and you must know you're standing, you're, you're you're watching people on uh, the stage of the World Economic Forum. You really should know who these people are. So this uh, this lady, I was going to say woman, doesn't sound good. Uh, chair is a chairperson of uh, Bain Capital, so that's the same firm as uh, Mitt Romney's in. Um, she's the daughter of a German-born IDF. Uh, uh, member of the IDF. I'm not sure what his position was, but she herself was in the IDF, um, where she was deputy chief of staff for the Israeli Defense Force, which I would say is pretty high up in a position. Um, she attended Harvard. She's got links with Oxford, MIT, Tel Aviv University on the supervisory board of Royal Dutch Phillips. Uh, she's on the CFR, of course, like everybody is, and the uh, board of trustees for the World Economic Forum um, and the Perez Institute for Peace and Innovation. And she's going to introduce a short presentation, a 20-minute presentation that we're going to look over by Yuval Noah Harari, this lovely man who speaks so eloquently and so nicely and is presenting Apocalypse with a very, like, genial manner. You know, these... Yeah. You've got, you've got to remember in the whole time you watch this, he's not talking to the people He's talking to the elites in a room full of bankers and people who believe they really rule the world. Whether they do or not, we can only prove or disprove. 
but the, these people are, are very self-important. Right. And I would describe this guy sort of as a philosopher of the elite and also like a, he's both a historian, but also a futurist. And what's interesting is that some of his biggest promoters are people like Barack Obama and people from, you know, the U.S. political establishment, but also people like Mark Zuckerberg. And you can actually look up on YouTube this conversation where Zuckerberg is interviewing Harari and Zuckerberg is basically like so giddy. It's like he's a you know, finally meeting his hero, I guess. So, you know, just to, to give you an indication of the type of pull this guy has among these these big names that we know about and, you know, accuse of of pulling a lot of the strings of what's going on in the world and things like that. And, you know, Facebook's a really good example of that. So, you know, worth keeping that in mind as, as, as we're watching. And I think it's really good that you pointed that out. His core audience here, and he makes it very, very clear several times in this speech, is that the core audience is the people at Davos, the leaders assembled there, whether it's business leaders, government leaders, or, or what thought leaders, what have you. So uh, with that being said, uh, let's go and start rolling the video. Uh, I'm the chairman of Bain & Company, and welcome to the session on how to survive the 21st century. It's not a new topic, uh, but it's really getting urgent. 18 years ago, Martin Rees, Britain's astronomer royal, published a book on the topic. He gave civilization a 50-50 chance of surviving the 21st century. Today, he says his concerns have only grown. He cites new technologies, environmental catastrophe as the reasons. <laughs> well, don't yell at me, yell at the technician. <laughs> Can you hear me now? Okay. Should I repeat what I said? She hates this. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Uh, well, first I introduce myself. I'm Arit Gadish. The order there is a little mis uh, misleading. I'm the chairman of Bain & Company, and I welcome you to the session on how to survive the 21st century. Uh, I start by saying that this is not a new topic and mentioned that uh, 18 years ago, Martin Rees, the Br Britain's astronomer royal, published a book on the topic. And he gave civilization a 50-50 chance of surviving the 21st century. He published another book this year, or actually last year, and his concerns have only grown. He cited technology and environmental catastrophe as reasons. Now, being over 30, it is highly unlikely that I will survive the 21st century. And some days, especially when I hear about the uh, fires in Australia, or here we get another example of our data being used to manipulate us surreptitiously. I find myself kind of glad of that, but I fear that the next generations may live to see horrific things. But perhaps not, especially if we start to really get serious about the existential issues that are coming now into plain sight. With us today is Yuval Noah Harari. He's a best-selling author of three books. The latest is 21 Lessons for 21st Century. He's a historian and a philosopher. He has thought long and hard about three existential challenges, nuclear war, ecological collapse, and technological disruption. Also with us is Mark Rutte, also an historian. He's been the prime minister of the Netherlands for 10 years. In Not anymore, but he still is. The World Economic Forum Competitors mm -hmm. Report ranked the Netherlands as fourth globally and first in Europe. 
It's a pretty good report card for a nation with some real challenges that are relevant to the topic we're gonna to be talking about today. As many of you know, about a third of the country is below sea level. The Dutch are famous for their dikes. Uh, and they're also famous for the little boy who plugged the leak in one of those dikes uh, when, <laughs> until, uh, until help arrived. There are not enough little boys to just plug the threats that surround us today. But perhaps we can learn something from such devotion to a common good, which this is what it portrayed. To kick things off, Yuval is going to share some of his common thought. Thank you. So hello, everyone. Here we go, Yuval Noah Harari. Can you hear me okay? If not, just make a sign. As we enter the third decade of the 21st century, humanity faces so many issues and questions that it's really hard to know what to focus on. So I would like to use the next 20 minutes to help us focus. Of all the different issues we face, three problems pose existential challenges to our species. These three existential challenges are nuclear war, ecological collapse, and technological disruption. We should focus on them. Now, nuclear war and ecological collapse are already familiar threats, so let me spend some time explaining the less familiar threat posed by technological disruption. In Davos, we hear so much about the enormous promises of technology, and these promises are certainly real, but technology might also disrupt human society and the very meaning of human life in numerous ways, ranging from the creation of a global useless class to the rise of data colonialism and of digital dictatorships. Wow. Yeah, well, um, I am, what he said at the end is, is really crazy, right? But to start off, um, so he talks about these three issues that are existential threats, but really his whole speech, as we'll see in a moment, is really about just the third one, which is this theme of technological disruption. But it's worth pointing out that the other two threats he brings up, nuclear war and ecological collapse, are really the fault of those represented at the World Economic Forum, which again mm -hmm. is his audience here for this speech. Completely right, amazing. So. We, we've wrecked ever, the other two. Now let's go on and wreck technology in a way that suits us and does exactly the same thing as we've always, uh, always done, which is try to subjugate lots of people so we can ha eat more caviar and, and laugh at the, uh, the plebs. Sorry. Right. And, and so these first two existential threats also are about potentially, potentially annihilating life, right? You know, um, so this third one is about disrupting the very meaning of human life, he says. So this is basically about tech disruption. This third existential threat he's going to be talking about is essentially about, you know, the technologically induced enslavement of humanity as opposed to the elimination of humanity, right? So is that necessarily better? And are these really our only, you know, uh, three options or two options, really, since the first two are annihilation? Annihilation or technological enslavement? Well, Harari later on, as we'll see, basically makes a case that, yes, those are the only... <laughs> Uh, two options facing down the the future of future of humanity, and it's pretty serious when they and and it is a running theme. This like destruction of life is a running theme through a lot of um 
uh, Yuval Noah Harari's work. He, he tends to look at history as, oh, this is what we used to be um, 6,000 years ago. We started really getting things together. And in 100 years, we're going to be wiped out completely by the people in this room. One of you are going to be the lucky winners of the prize to destroy humanity. Um, the, the, the now nuclear war and ecological collapse are already familiar to threats. Um, so let's not bother about them. The idea that, that let's, let's go on, they, they, they are all over both things. They are their fingerprints um, and their ability to control and manipulate the uh, effects and the consequences of their actions over many years, they're, they're already so guilty of the first two. It is really, it just feels so, um, it's a grand irony. But I think a lot of this is, this speech is about looking at what they really mean by things rather than what they uh, allude to because they have to dumb this down because the masses are going to see it. But you will also feel within the speech that they feel above the masses all of the time. There's um, a difference between us and them. And as we we heard uh, the first mention of this word that we'll hear repeating in this, which is um, of a global useless class, um, the the people who will uh, have no place in the world in the future, who will be useless, not to their friends and family, but to society at large. Um, I well, think to the system. He later qualifies it as being useless to the, the political and economic establishment, right? Yep. And you could argue that, you know, they already see us as that, but they can't completely uh, control. <laughs> well, uh, they can't treat people as useless as they view them quite yet, but they're working to consolidate control to get to that point, I think. But in what talking you, about, oh, sorry. Mm -hmm. So I was just going to say a lot of what Yuval Noah Harari says here is he kind of dances between the past and the future um, on the line of where we are at the present, sometimes deciding to call it the past when it suits his his terminology and sometimes deciding to call it the future when it suits his, his uh, right. uses. So he, he really dances upon a line where sometimes you're not sure whether he's talking in the past or the future. He's, he's a very confusing fella. Right. So moving on to talking about what this useless class really means. So like in, in the past, right, the masses, uh, the largest class, like I guess you could say, um, you know, were needed by titans of industry, right, to power industry by either working in mines or factories or things like that. But now we know that we're moving into this phase of, you know, the, the fourth industrial revolution, as the World Economic Forum calls it, which is, you know, automation nation. Uh, they don't need uh, human workers in the factories anymore, you know, people that complain that have needs and all of this stuff, you know, they've made it very clear that it's all going to be automated and going to be uh, either entirely digital or done by robots. And, and, and we're already seeing industries across the board start to interject uh, way more uh, robotic or AI driven uh, workers and starting to phase out their workforce, uh, supposedly because of COVID-19, right? But um, that definitely shows you that they uh, don't need us anymore. And that they know that in a few years, they, they if things keep going the way they're going, they can treat us as the global useless class. Um, and obviously that terminology implies that this useless class will be inferior to the not useless class um, mm -hmm. and that the divide between this useless and useful class uh, is going to widen ever more. Um, and he goes on to talk about that in different terms. 
a little bit, but it's, you know, it's important to point out that if there's a useless class, there will remain a class that is, you know, its counterpart, the useful class, at least in the eyes of the establishment. I'm amazed at um, a lot of people um, uh, who are out there, who even people who, who take in the independent media and take in uh, evidence-based research, when I say independent media, that part of the independent media, um, when, when, <laughs> yeah, when those people... Um, and a lot of a lot of the people who think they're they're awake, um, they they don't they still think that they need us in factories, that they need us to build their stuff, that they need us to serve them. But we're entering into a different stage. So what is this they're talking about? With this current phase, our reality is turning into technology, which means these will all be taken by robots. It will be 3D robots driven by self-learning AI telling them what to do. There won't be a supervisor and a manager in most places. It'll just put, you put down the machine and it's already set up to design and build probably what we would describe as cookie cutter properties for the little people and big, fabulous, shiny buildings for the big people. Uh, I mean, this is, we are entering into a phase of humanity where if we don't realize it, we will all be on train soon. We will all be going to the places where where we know this all ends. This is about as uh, dehumanizing a massive portion of the poor population. And don't let anybody uh, misinform you. There is one battle in the world, and that has always been the very wealthy, greedy people on top subjugating the poor people. It's always been rich versus poor. Never forget that. It's all of the time they try and divide us, and they try and put us into these different classes. They try and create these things, and they call us these names don't believe it it really truly is and this is probably the best representation of that said by the elite community is the idea that the global useless class are the people and we're the other people they're almost saying look yeah. those are the proletariat or the bourgeoisie or these are the 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 plebs and these are the the, the clever ones there's tints of eugenics within it there's there's hints of the 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 worst pasts pasts that we can imagine um and and it, even worse is when we think about the useless class what they say in the last couple of sentences is this creation of global useless class to the rise of data colonialism and of digital dictatorships because if you have a useless class a useless class you need that useful class up there to dictate what that useless class does and there's not much things there's not many jobs for them to tell us to do that they want us to do anymore right so this is where he introduces uh, these ideas of the useless class and data colonialism he talks a lot about uh both of those later on in the speech so we'll get to that in a little bit but really quick to say something about data colonialism the way he frames it here is that it's something that will happen we have to stop its rise uh, but I think it's pretty clear that this is already happening on a huge scale in the in the U.S. via, you know, in the U.S. specifically via Palantir, right, uh, being one of the main companies there that now knows everything about you and is pretty open about their plans to create a digital panopticon uh, throughout the United States um, and other uh, countries where they're active as well. So really this rise, the infrastructure for these digital dictatorships has been being built and in, in really hidden in plain sight, uh, you know, for the better part of two decades. 
So mm. he can't exactly be like, oh, we have to stop its rise. A lot of the people he's talking to directly have been involved in creating that exact infrastructure, um, you know, for decades now. So, you know, once again, we have to keep in mind his core audience here. And, you know, uh, with this type of information and, and having this type of thinker on their side, where do you think they're going to go with this? I mean, really, they're trying to uh, use Harari here in some ways to posit themselves as concerned, uh, the concerned elite trying to help their little brothers, uh, you know, and the lower classes uh, and make a better world for everyone and all of this stuff. That's why he's framing this stuff as we need to intervene to prevent the rise of this stuff, whereas they've been building the infrastructure for the rise of this for a long time. And, and they're obviously going to continue to do that. So you have to keep all of that stuff in mind because he tries to frame this to sell it. Um, you know, to the to the greater population, including the whole Great Reset agenda, which is, you know, this year, 2021, their big theme at Davos is building trust uh, with people. So, you know, this marketing is going to be a big part of that. But I don't think we stressed this enough in the beginning. So uh, our mistake, but this is actually a speech from last year's Davos that we thought was a good introduction to the whole uh, Davos agenda. And this panel, How to Survive the 21st Century, was the most, uh, like, elevated and, and promoted panel of the World Economic Forum that year. And it was Harari that's giving the keynote speech to it. So obviously for these people, it had a lot of importance. And of course, January 2020 is before the COVID uh, crisis and all of this stuff really uh, came into view. But it was all, you know, we know that, you know, all those CEOs resigned in that January and the elite knew that it was coming for sure by then. So it's very interesting to see the things they were discussing in the two months prior to the COVID crisis. And I think that informs a lot of the other videos we'll be discussing about the more recent Davos that's going on this week um, as we go forward in the series. So with that being said, I guess we can go back to the video now unless you want to add anything. I just want to say one more little tiny, tiny thing is that people have got to remember that um, uh, technological growth through the history of technological growth from the wheel and the plow all the way up to where we are now reaching quantum computers has, has proven always to be basically exponential growth. It just keeps going and going and doubling and doubling and doubling. We're at a, pl a place now where we've never been before. We've never been. We're about to skip generations in the power that we've uh, got behind the these uh, uh, these systems that will be able to be used to exploit us, but then are likely to run out of control, as they themselves will say in a little bit later on. Right. Okay. So go back to the video. First, we might face upheavals on the social and economic level. Automation will soon eliminate millions upon millions of jobs. And while new jobs will certainly be created, it is unclear whether people will be able to learn the necessary new skills fast enough. Suppose you're a 50 years old truck driver and you just lost your job to a self-driving vehicle. Now there are new jobs in designing software or in teaching yoga to engineers. But how does a 50 years old truck driver reinvent himself or herself as a software engineer or as a yoga teacher. And people will have to do it not just once, but again and again throughout their lives because the automation revolution will not be a single watershed event following which the job market will settle down into some new equilibrium. Rather, it will be a cascade of ever bigger disruptions because AI is nowhere near its full potential. 
old jobs will disappear, new jobs will emerge, but then the new jobs will rapidly change and vanish. Whereas in the past, humans has had to struggle against exploitation, in the 21st century, the really big struggle will be against irrelevance. And it's much worse to be irrelevant than to be exploited. Well, that last sentence, I think, is a, a great place to start. The worse to be irrelevant than exploited. Well, I think what that really means is that in order to avoid being irrelevant, you will have to submit to exploitation. So if the difference before was between the unexploited and the exploited, now it's versus exploited and useless, right? So is it better to be, it's better to be exploited than irrelevant. So this is a way of getting people to be like, well, uh, if those are our only choices, I guess I'll go with exploited uh, because I certainly don't want to be part of the useless irrelevant class. Uh, the, the, one of the problems is we are already irrelevant and useless to them and exploited. So we're irrelevant and exploited anyway. We're, to them, we are nothing and we are exploitable. So what's the difference? It's much worse to be irrelevant and exploited. It's exactly what we've got now. So yeah. there's no there's no difference. Or it, well, but that that's the thing about Harari as well. When he talks about history in the modern context, but treats it like it's the past, or at least talks about modern um, things as though it's in the past and it's still happening today. He does a lot of that. He's he's like um, a revisionist. He, he, he in his head he, he allows things. I mean, you'll see later on. I'll be able to point out contradictions where in one uh, one time he's saying the completely opposite to what he's saying in the next uh, paragraph because he is truly um uh, he 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 believes that he's not irrelevant for sure and he's not to be exploited so he doesn't see himself down there um within those areas but yeah, my point is just that we're already to them irrelevant and exploitable so right but I guess within the useless class, you're going to have a relevant versus exploited in this giant underclass. And I think at the end of the day, it's going to be, you know, these people, the elite, right, think they'll get to choose who gets to be what what's the difference between someone who's in the exploited class or the irrelevant class? Um, and what do you have to do to be included in the exploited class? What do you have to agree? Uh, what parts of your life do you have to give up and allow to be exploited in order to get those special privileges I get that they'll have above the useless class, uh, right? Because, you know, divide and conquer, even if we have a neo-feudal system, won't necessarily go away. You know, feudalism also had those particular people and communities with certain privileges as long as they, you know, helped maintain the order of the feudal system, you know. Uh, so it's it's interesting to to look at it from that angle, too. Um, and also, um, going back to the useless class discussion, you know, we already talked about how they don't really need us anymore as as workers because they've developed algorithms and, and robots to replace us and all of this stuff. But they also are trying to create a future right now so that they don't need us anymore for political legitimacy, uh, that people, uh, they don't need uh, the people's right or the people's consent to rule anymore. Um, and, and, you know, the way we know that they're going to accomplish this based on basically what they've been building up in terms of infrastructure for this uh, for years. Uh, you know, I mentioned Palantir earlier. So, you know, it's going to be this mix of AI driven uh, mass surveillance of both our external and our internal environments. And in terms of the internal environment surveillance, uh, surveillance Harari has a uh, some pretty chilling stuff to say about that. And that's definitely on the way and part of the greater vision of, of what people like Harari and the people who support him at the World Economic Forum 
you know, are, are talking about coming in just a couple of years, they say, right? And this is 2020 uh, when they're talking about that. So already a year past that. But of course, it won't just be this AI-driven mass surveillance system. It'll also be AI-driven automated weapons, robocops, drones, whatever, to enforce the whole thing. So they don't even need regular people to police us, right? You know, it all just becomes automated for their for their benefit. And so, you know, I was on my last podcast, I had Catherine Austin Fitz, and we were talking about sort of this vision for the future. And she said, you know, it's important to point out that there are some things, some uh, that are worse than death, some fates that are worse than death. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's worth considering that when we're looking at this third existential threat, right, the that Harari talks about that, you know, at least for me, uh, a lot of this uh, the surveillance enslavement, you're not even a human anymore, and you have no de- decision or control over your own life, and you're basically livestock, uh, definitely seems worse than death to me. So I guess if the two previous existential threats are about us all dying, you know, uh, I don't know. Uh, but but then again, you know, we're going to get into how that whole argument about we have to do it, we have to do it this way, uh, or we'll all be annihilated is a total fallacy. Um, but we'll get to that in a little bit. So anything you want to uh, add, Johnny? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, when he starts off that section, he says, like, automation will soon eliminate millions upon millions of jobs. Now, that's a choice as well. That's not just they're choosing to go ahead. This great reset and the pushing on of this makes that happen. We don't have to necessarily go into extreme change at a very high speed that isn't something that we've ever had to do and what stopped that from happening is uh governance like democracy uh, the problem is is that there's a lot of people who would be happy to get on board with all of this because quite simply they can't see alternatives and they're hoping for anybody who can actually do something to do something and so they're like oh quickly change it change it change it change it so a lot of people are willing to get on board with this but they don't understand what it means for them it means as soon as they get on board with it their jobs become eliminated they become the useless class um and and some of the some of the the uh patronizing talk that is within that last stretch uh, of uh, Yuval's speech there um it is unclear whether people will be able to learn like and and basically he's going to go on to say um a sentence which is in essence learn to code He's saying, how does a 50-year-old truck driver reinvent himself or herself as a software engineer or as a yoga teacher? Well, that is learn to code. We know it's not going to happen. We know that that, that a 50-year-old truck driver isn't going to be able to reinvent himself like that. And so we already know that. It's it's leading on to us saying they're definitely going to be useless class. But wait, we are going really fast into the future and we don't have to move that fast for people because people can't move that fast. So we've got to find a pace of change which is acceptable to both living culture, humanity, um, and and has the consensus behind it. Not something that is like, oh, this is going to happen to you, whether you like it or not. This is a great reset. So, um, oh, now we've got COVID. There's basically no um, democracy. Uh, let's actually get rid of a bit of democracy democracy let's be ruled by ai okay now we're being ruled by ai and none of us has got choice and none of us knows how this works this is a, the direction we're going to but it's very patronizing to to basically uh, um have this idea that people are these tools that if they can get on board with our ideas they'll be useless 
because their ideas, what, what gave them the right to include other people within their ideas? This is what we're saying when there's global control, when there's people all over the world manipulating all different things. These are the really rich people who they're not conspiring directly against you as a person, but they're conspiring to make as much money as possible. And that doesn't matter if people die or not. And that is what we've always had to deal with. But now with technology moving at double the pace, these truck drivers are nothing to them. These are really true. It's irrelevant. We will be irrelevant and exploited to the nth degree as much as they possibly can do. And in this example he's giving here of a truck driver being replaced by a self-driving vehicle, I mean, that's almost here. Uh, they've made it really clear, uh, this whole mm -hmm. self-driving car thing. Uh, it got a huge agenda boost with COVID, but it was really laid out by the National Security Commission on AI for the U.S. anyway in the beginning of or the early part of 2019. And now, I mean, it's it's gotten really far and you have, a, you know, a Pete Buttigieg, who's said to be what the Secretary of Transportation for Biden uh, and also Biden's infrastructure plan and all of this stuff, talking about self-driving cars, electric vehicles, um, top people in Congress talking about how the self-driving vehicles uh, legislation for that's going to be passed in a couple months and all of that stuff. And they're going to start rolling it out. I mean, tons of companies, mostly based in California, have been prepping for this all year and promoting it as a way to, mm -hmm. you know, do deliveries uh, to your house by car that aren't going to get you in trouble with COVID or, or expose you to COVID and all of this stuff because there's no driver. Um, and all of these things. And, you know, this whole idea that human interaction is somehow unsafe now. We have to move to a total, uh, totally new system where, you know, it's as little human to human interaction as possible. And it's all for our health. Uh, so we're told. And, you know, that's just one example of how healthcare has become so central to their whole uh, manipulations. And as we'll see here, and also in uh, for for patrons and, and Rockman subscribers, we'll be doing a bonus episode of a of a Q&A with Harari where he talks a lot about healthcare and privacy and the manipulations of healthcare to get you to consent to this Orwellian uh, Orwellian techn technocratic state and things like that but you know it's a we've seen that just so much over the past year the use of healthcare um, as sort of a cover on um, you know with the whole covid crisis to advance a lot of these agendas that these people have been pushing for uh, just uh, as long as they've been pushing for the broader fourth industrial revolution yeah, um, uh, there's there is uh, one thing from the last uh, paragraph that he he mentions, which is really important to note, uh, and it's something you'll hear again, but it's always heard in the background. Is that um, AI, current AI, and the AI that's coming out in the very near future, is um, nowhere near its full potential. So we're not only going to be they're not only going to be switching governance to AI and um, technological solutions, but they're going to be switching it to technological solutions and AI that don't work and aren't ready to work. Mm -hmm. So it's a very much like you have in the games industry, at least in the PC games industry nowadays, where they release a game and it's not going to be ready for a year. Well, this is like releasing society, releasing the biggest patch, the biggest operating server for culture and society of all time. And they're going to do it straight away implement it without anybody complaining this ain't they, they, i mean if anybody who's uh, played um, a first release civilization game or something along those lines <laughs> knows that you will have uh, many people voicing their opinion about how much they hate you and what you're doing to their life <laughs> <laughs> all right well with that being said let's get back to the back to the video those who fail in the struggle against irrelevance would constitute a new useless class. People who are useless 
not from the viewpoint of the friend and family, of course, but useless from the viewpoint of the economic and political system. And this useless class will be separated by an ever-growing gap from the ever more powerful elite. The AI revolution might create unprecedented inequality, not just between classes, but also between countries. In the 19th century, a few countries like Britain and Japan industrialized first, and they went on to conquer and exploit most of the world. If we aren't careful, the same thing will happen in the 21st century with AI. We are already in the midst of an AI arms race, with China and the USA leading the race, and most countries being left far, far behind. You want to start with that one? Ooh, yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot there, isn't it? Because, of course, he goes on about what we've already discussed and what we're, we're going to see more of this sense as a useless class. Um, and this is going to be uh, a theme where... Uh, you're going to hear it from more places than just here. You're going to hear this over and over again in the future from people. And eventually it will be like um, obvious that there's there's two separate classes, distinct classes, the ones who the economic system worked out well for and the ones the economic system didn't work out well for. Um, the the what, what he says about the AI arms race um, and like countries like uh, Britain and Japan were the first to become in, to, to take advantage of the industrialized race uh industrialization race and, and take over um he he tries to make out that it's only going to be really china and usa up front but that's such a it's, it's such a like because no one really knows who's going to be the person to invent the there's there's loads of research projects going on britain are already very far advanced with a lot of their research um israel of course are just there's i think they're third or something and they're catching up quickly on um amount of tech startups etc and they are seriously dominating massive parts of the market there's going to be um one that wins out though the, the thing is with ai is that uh, powerful quantum powered ai as well as what we're talking about there's going to be one that will be able to rise above all others um which is kind of what the elites do really well but they're just doing it in computer form the, the way I look at the whole China-U.S. AI arms race narrative um, is basically this narrative that's been totally constructed and is advanced by the same people that want what Harari wants, which is a global governance structure that comes together to create this collective set of rules uh, followed by nation states as it relates to AI um, and all of these disruptive technologies um, and that it's sort of this... Uh, narrative that's put out where uh, where they basically try and frame it as being we have to stop this arms race from happening or it will mean war and the annihilation of the species so we must cooperate now and really the guy the mastermind of this whole push and, and that whole narrative that comes 100 percent from henry kissinger uh, and what i in my head call the kissinger club or kk I spell it with a, you know, uh, <laughs> a little, with a little happy like face cat. <laughs> yeah, well, sort of like the KKK, but missing a single K. I mean, they're equally evil. Um, so the Kissinger Club um, is, is people like Eric Schmidt, right, who had the National Security Commission on AI. And uh, one of his, Schmidt's biggest pals, uh, pals the head of uh, Blackstone Capital, Steve Schwartzman, uh, Schmidt, 
uh, Schwartzman, uh, a lot of other big Silicon Valley figures like Jack Dorsey are part of this thing called the Bergruen Institute that's all about creating this global coalition, just like the World Economic Forum, to use, to create this collective set of uh, rules, global rules about AI and who benefits from it and how they can be used and whatnot. Uh, in this global cooperation um, approach, you know, these are the guys masterminding it. But if you look at someone like Eric Schmidt, who in private is part of all of these organi organizations and, and is advancing that cooperation agenda, um, both privately and publicly, he's also the head of the National Security Commission on AI in the U.S. And that particular body frames all of its decision making. Uh, remember, that's uh, Silicon Valley, the military and the intelligence community. They frame all of their initiatives of forcing AI uh, into the U.S. economy uh, through public-private partnerships, that you know, which basically the National Security Commission on AI is, uh, they frame all of that as being necessary to beat China in the arms race, right? Mm -hmm. So, but, but but behind the scenes, they're all part of this. Let's build it together with China. And of course, you have to ask the question: Who is who is pulling the strings in China? Uh, you know, I would point a lot of people to James Corbett's work on on this uh, China in the New World Order, which shows you know the uh, people like Kissinger. And, you know, the the faction of global elites that are closely associated with Kissinger, their uh, role in the rise of China and how they've really shaped a lot of uh, policies by the Chinese state, you know, from the 70s and the opening of China with Kissinger as secretary of state, you know, on into the present. And so it's no coincidence, again, to see China, uh, Kissinger here being central um, in, in driving these narratives. And Eric Schmidt, by the way, has been called the new Kissinger uh, since, you know, old Kissinger is uh, hopefully soon uh, on the way out. So, you know, it, I think it's really uh, important to point that out, though, because Harari justifies uh, so much of what he says are solutions by using this arms race narrative and even the people advancing that narrative saying, oh, this is uh, essential to U.S. military hegemony and all of this stuff, uh, you know, are supposedly doing it for nationalist purposes are really actually the globalists. So it's like totally just some fake... Uh, argument at the end of the day and as a way to basically make the this Orwellian future as inevitable as they claim by controlling both sides of the arms race and they're ultimately going to get the same you're ultimately going to get the same deal in the end uh, but you know Harari obviously doesn't bring any of this stuff up why would he I, I think uh, I think <laughs> I, uh, I'm not sure Kissinger will ever be left to die. He will be uploaded to the Kissinger cloud. Clouds spelled with a K. Uh, <laughs> he'll be uploaded to the KK. Um, he's a very important Wait, person. Well, Kissinger he, Club Cloud would be the new KKK. So no, there you go. Obviously, but anyway, okay. So uh, um, use, <laughs> useless from the viewpoint. They say it in the last part uh useless from the viewpoint he says of economic and political systems we've got to really make a mm -hmm. note of that the useless class is that you're not useless to mummy mummy still loves you that's what mummy does that's always what <laughs> oh mummies God. do um what what really what what they see is you're useless to them you're useless mm -hmm. to the viewpoint of the economic and political system, an economic and political system that's run by a very small amount, not even a 1%, a 0.3%, 0.1%. You know, we're going down to really, really small figures. Um, they, they say, and in this, when he says, and the useless class will be separated in an ever-growing gap from the ever more powerful elite. So he's already standing in front of an ever more powerful elite telling them, the, if they follow this bad path, you'll be the ones who win. You'll be the ones who are on top. 
you'll be the division where you're on top and they're right on bottom. He's telling this to the, he's like saying to the crocodiles, look at that gazelle over there. He's eating out of the water, drinking. You could just take him out and that's it. He's gone. It's, it's, it's the, the temptation or to the people who are most likely to abuse their power to abuse power. It's very interesting who he says these things to. Right, good point. All right, so let's go back to the video. Unless we take action to distribute the benefits and power of AI between all humans, AI will likely create immense wealth in a few high-tech hubs, while other countries will either go bankrupt or will become exploited data colonies. Now, we aren't talking about a science fiction scenario of robots rebelling against humans. We are talking about far more primitive AI, which is nevertheless enough to disrupt the global balance. Just think, what will happen to developing economies once it is cheaper to produce textiles or cars in California than in Mexico? And what will happen to politics in your country in 20 years when somebody in San Francisco or in Beijing knows the entire medical and personal history of every politician, every judge, and every journalist in your country, including all their sexual escapades, all their mental weaknesses, and all their corrupt dealings? Will it still be an independent country, or will it become a data colony? When you have enough data, you don't need to send soldiers in order to control a country. All right, where to start first on that one? Well, I guess I would uh, start off with saying that, well, data colonies are here, uh, Yuval. Uh, they're not something off in the future. They're definitely here, and they have gone much further uh, in the COVID era than they, than they were moving before. So, you know, as I've talked about um, a couple times in my work over the past year, so much of this Orwellian uh, tech infrastructure, particularly on the angle of, uh, you know, or the side of biometric IDs or these sort of hybrid biometric ID, digital wallet, vaccine card hybrids, um, you know, these are all being piloted in the poorest countries in the world uh, as, with a ton of them being implemented that weren't already implemented um, last year. You know, big, uh, big focuses uh, of those programs, for example, have been countries like Bangladesh, in Nigeria, and of course, before COVID, this was mostly being done uh, in in uh, refugee camps uh, by by groups like the World Food Program or the International Rescue Committee um, in in places like Myanmar and in Syria. So you know, uh, they definitely. I mean, that's really data colonialism, especially when you consider that actually Harari in some of his other talks, like his 2018 address to the World Economic Forum talks about how biometric data specifically is just going to be a huge, probably the biggest fuel in terms of data for developing these AI algorithms in, in this Orwellian uh, tech infrastructure. So to see all of that stuff happening specifically and going farther than anywhere else in these countries first tells you that they're already setting up uh, data colonies um, in, in this particular uh, way that he's uh, talking about right now. So it's definitely not something that's Oh, we have to stop it from happening. And the people doing it are literally the people in this room. 
that he's talking to, like the International Rescue Committee that I mentioned a second ago, that's led by David Miliband, a uh, former big guy in the UK Labour Party, um, very close, cozy with the, uh, the Clinton family, of course, Tony Blair, uh, people like that. Um, and you have, you know, the top executives at Pfizer, uh, the former secretary of the Treasury under Obama chairing their board, uh, Madeleine Albright Kissinger's on the board. Uh, you know, uh, Condoleezza Rice, all of these people are there. You think they actually care about the well-being of, of, ref uh, of refugees or they're trying to, you know, uh, start feeding on this biometric data that's going to ensure their control systems. Um, you know, I think it's pretty clear to see what's going on. And, um, you know, his audience obviously has a lot of those same type of people that are affiliated with the IRC uh, that he's talking to right there. So, I mean, the people building this <laughs> this exact stuff he's warning about are the people he's talking to. Like, don't mm -hmm. do this, guys. I know you're doing it, but don't do it. You know, I mean, it's just yeah. um, it's posturing to really, you know, market this to other people. We need the World Economic Forum to step in because they're the only people aware that can see this issue building. And he says in other places that the masses have no clue um, about what's really going on. And it's only really people like him and, and you know, the elites, I guess he's influencing that know what. Uh, what's coming down the pike. Of course we do. And we try and talk about it, but then social media companies censor people like you and me. Right. Yeah. Uh, again. And, and um, what's the difference uh, again, this is, this is really important to know how he's talking about exploited data colonies. You could just take out, you could just see data as the fact you rule over people, you know, everything they're doing anyway. That's what we've been for such a long time. There's so many exploited data colonies, but if you work it through into the future and you play the thing out and think about what that means for for the future it means that different countries and different areas and different people of the world i think more likely different ethnicity eventually will have different tests performed on them so that they can expand fuller uh, fuller operations over and over and over again so you'll have one um poor set a group of poor really extremely poor people over in one part of the world who will uh, be tested on in this way and another will be tested on in this way and another will be tested on in this way really what their ideas of exploited data colonies is just about um, controlling people and that also means having a variety of ways to control people so they can test it out and see what we're, it's like there's a lot to be said about them treating us like uh, guinea pigs in that respect right. um, the Ganey mentions as well that the, the AI is primitive AI we're, talk, we're not talking about we're talking about far more primitive AI um, there's so much to come and it goes into it like I say exponentially it grows uh, of course I'm sure you're going to want to talk about the fact that he um, yeah yeah go on you you go <laughs> well the blackmail angle right so where he's talking about what will happen when this person in San Francisco or Beijing knows everyone about everybody in the country will it still be independent or not? Well, um, you know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of ironic that Harari is Israeli, why he's saying this, right? Because basically what he's saying at, uh, with that is uh, this is about conquering countries by blackmail. You don't need to send in a military to conquer a country by using blackmail. So he's saying data, you know, when you have enough data, you don't need to send in the soldiers to control a country. But what he's saying with that particular point is when you have enough blackmail, you don't need to send send in soldiers to control a country. And of course, uh, controlling countries through blackmail uh, is something that has been going on for a very long time. Look no further than the Epstein scandal itself. Um, but of course, the art of blackmailing uh, since 2012, especially, has gone uh, pretty much entirely digital. 
And, uh, you know, uh, I think that's why it's really easy to see uh, what happened with Epstein and, and Ghislaine Maxwell. They moved on from sex blackmail after that, that first arrest in 2006, 2007. Uh, and then, you know, they rebrand as either financers or uh, schmoozers, I guess, in the, social, the Silicon Valley scene. Specifically, Epstein starts talking about all the blackmail he has on Silicon Valley executives, their sexual habits and their, their drug use. Why is he doing that? Why did they both you know, these obvious intelligence assets uh, mm -hmm. start moving in, into that field away from sex blackmail into digital blackmail. Well, I think it's pretty clear. Um, and obviously, in the Internet of Things era we're supposedly entering into, and a lot of people are inviting into their home with crap like Alexa, throw it out. Anyway, uh, all of that is going to exacerbate this to a huge degree. And then once they start putting stuff on and in the body, it's obviously going to get even worse. So, you know, this is this is just a continuation of something that's been going on for decades, conquering countries by blackmail. And that's when he talks about these nation states that are going to be competing to be one of these immensely wealthy high tech hubs in this new this new world order, basically. Um, you know, uh, it's really important to point out the real arms race is for that is competing, having cities in your country competing for those positions. It's not an AI arms race. Like you're thinking like a nuclear arms race, you know, which is they want, they want you to draw that comparison to the cold war and a new AI cold war, right. With, with China. No, 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 no. This is about countries trying to see how many of these immensely wealthy high tech hubs they can build and control. Um, and, you know, I would argue that Israel clearly plans to be at the top, as does China um, and probably a couple other countries. But, you know, to me, it looks like the U.S., uh, by and large, is their plans for the U.S. or to have it be uh, mo almost entirely a data colony, maybe some differences, you know, in San Francisco and the Silicon Valley areas on the West Coast. Right. But, you know, why else would you have Governor Cuomo of, of New York give only Israeli companies the contracts to build five smart cities in New York State this year? Um, and, and things like that, you know, who is building the infrastructure on the East coast specifically for all of this stuff? Why isn't it American companies? And you look at, you know, the extent of, you know, Israeli espionage, Israeli blackmail, um, and a lot of the moves that have been made in cybersecurity, um, you know, it's pretty telling. And it's also telling too uh, the person overseeing this session or at, uh, Gadiash, right. As part of this Paris center for peace and innovation, uh, where you have uh, Isabel Maxwell and the one of the biggest associates of the Bronfman family saw so this mega group stuff coming together, uh, being the main drivers and the founding directors of that organization. And it's all about seeding uh, Israeli uh, Unit 8200 intelligence connected tech companies into U.S. tech companies or the U.S. tech infrastructure by awarding uh, government contracts or public contracts or major corporate contracts in the U.S. to companies either deeply tied or directly related, uh, you know, to Israel's intelligence services. So, I mean, that seems like a setup for a data colony. And why would they have been blackmailing and spying on our government so extensively, um, you know, for the past several decades with Epstein just being one example, right? I talk about in my work how there's, you know, pretty extensive documented history you can't refute. Lots of espionage scandals, just they, they get swept under the rug, right? Because it all depends on who's really investigating and prosecuting it. And if, you know, they're in on it, whatever. So, um, I don't know if you have any opinions about uh, where some of these other immensely wealthy high tech hubs will pop up, but <laughs> well, first of all, the, the first point you make are, uh, about the blackmailing 
if you go back to the times when uh, arms races were the most destructive, so if you go back, say, the late 1800s, early 1900s, with the uh, development of machine guns and different boat warfare, large artillery um, weapons, um, moving from the basic cannons across to these big, mahusive, destructive, powerful Goliaths. And then you had World War One, which was basically about... Um, the useless class you could call them back then uh being wiped out by the elites yeah. um in uh, um a way that was i mean despicable if you actually know what happened uh, at the beginning of the war they just kept sending in people into lines of machine gun fire they had no understanding of what the arms race would lead to and what warfare would look like once machine um guns were invented but they did it anyway or they knew and they did it anyway. Whatever happens, they always do the thing where they push it to see what happens when you push the button you're not meant to push. When you put the people in front of the machine guns you're not meant to put them in front of. And in a sense, what, and this is what I'm relating with this, is that blackmail has, has seen the same journey. It's seen the same route as things like machine guns and guns. It's uh, being weaponized mm -hmm. slowly in the background, uh, it, it used in very careful situations. It always was in the past, but we don't hear about them or we never hear about them because cause it, it was happening at the top levels and there was no way that anybody would find out about it. Nowadays, yeah. it's not the same. So it's grown up, it's like becoming an arms race in itself. Bribery. Well Notice how Harari doesn't just talk about these people knowing everything about politicians and people like that, but also journalists. All right, with that, we'll go back to the video. Alongside inequality, the other major danger we face is the rise of digital dictatorships that will monitor everyone all the time. This danger can be stated in the form of a simple equation, which I think might be the defining equation of life in the 21st century. B times C times D equals R, which means biological knowledge multiplied by computing power multiplied by data equals the ability to hack humans, R. If you know enough biology and you have enough computing power and data, you can hack my body and my brain and my life, and you can understand me better than I understand myself. You can know my personality type, my political views, my sexual preferences, my mental weaknesses, my deepest fears and hopes. You know more about me than I know about myself. And you can do that not just to me, but to everyone. A system that understands us better than we understand ourselves can predict our feelings and decisions, can manipulate our feelings and decisions, and can ultimately make decisions for us. Now, in the past, many tyrants and governments wanted to do it, but nobody understood biology well enough, and nobody had enough computing power and data to hack millions of people. Neither the Gestapo nor the KGB could do it. But soon, at least some corporations and governments will be able to systematically hack all the people. We humans should get used to the idea that we are no longer mysterious souls. We are now hackable animals.
That's what we are. <sighs> hackable animals. How's it feel, Johnny? Yeah, yeah, I am. I feel like a hackable animal. I feel all hacked up. I feel like someone's hacked me good. Um, this is this is something we 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 hear over and over again for Noah Harari. This hackable uh, humans. We're going to be hacked. We're going to be hacked. We're going to be hacked. Now. To be hacked, you have to, in biologically, you have to either give your consent or someone has to put in something into your body. Um, whether that be something that, like, that we can't even conceive of yet, like some form of laser brain ray, um, that maybe plays music <laughs> to you, like we've already seen in the Israeli uh, speaker company that's quite <laughs> crazy. Um, but, but, you know, do you have to? oblige you have to say okay i'm willing to take that mrna vaccination i don't know what it's going to do you don't know what it's going to do but i'll do it because eventually we'll learn more about it but you've also got to accept that this is how they start hacking they, they see you not as humans you're hackable animals this is a reoccurring theme you will hear over and over again you are hackable animals you are animals not humans you are able to be hacked it's another form useless class hackable animals another form of a dehumanizing the subjects who are underneath these elite um there is a few other things i i i i'd like to say about that, that whole bit but um please you talk about hackable animals how do you feel about sure. it well, what I think is interesting here is that he admits that the ruling class also, of course, represented at his audience here at the World Economic Forum, saying that they that governments in the past, including those represented here, right, um, have wanted to hack people uh, for a long time, but technology wasn't there yet. And now he's saying, oh, it's almost here, at least about to be publicly revealed anyway. Uh, we don't really know how long it's uh, existed, but oftentimes when they start publicly announcing stuff, uh, they've usually had it. Uh, for at least a couple years, if not more. So, um, and then what he goes on to say is that soon, again, this like couple years uh, time frame, he puts out uh, a handful of both corporations and governments will be able to quote systematically hack all people. Systematically uh, hack all people is such a scary process. I just want to say the sentence you talk about there where he says uh, many governments and tyrants wanted to do this, but nobody understood how to hack biology, et cetera, et cetera. He starts off that sentence from, from a statement analysis point of view. If you look at how he starts off that sentence, he says, now, in the past, many governments and tyrants, and this is something he does a lot. Again, I'm trying to point out how he's using now as being in the past he's saying what we're okay. doing now is in the past it's over it's the next phase we're on to new re uh, great reset times yeah. now we're on to new <laughs> new uh exploring Yay! new boundaries so so th th this now in the past also it's a way to talk to people that leaves their brains slightly confused it's um a f it's something that uh, uh, if you ever study it, the people like hypnosis, uh, hypnotists, etc., um, and people who try to manipulate people's thoughts do. They say something that's juxtaposed. So now in the past is juxtaposed from each other. They don't go in together. They don't work. It doesn't work in a sentence. This guy's written a speech in advance. He's uh, a historian who's written loads of books. Realize he does not make, make mistakes in what he says. So these sort of things now in the past, many governments and tyrants wanted to do it. Now, does he mean now many governments and tyrants want to do it? Or does he mean in the past, 
America because they still want to do it now. But he has yeah. to be really careful to placate the feelings of these elite who he's part of. He gets right. to speak up on stage. He's not speaking. You've got to realize, the people at home have got to realize, he's not speaking to you and me. He's not speaking to the useless class. He's speaking yeah. on stage in the World Economic Forum to the bankers and to the elites who people like us have said are really the 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 um, it, behind the levers of power because they are. There's no doubt about it. It's the documented fact in most cases nowadays. And this is because coming apparent to them obviously that their their disguise has gone down they've got no ability to hide what their agenda really is so it slips in between being in the past and now in the past now in the future in the very near future in the very near future and now you know they'll use those uh, uh, time frames they'll interchange them and mix them up because they need to disassociate themselves from the bad things of the past and say now is a new thing and the future is an even newer thing that we'll have no control over and we'll all be taken advantage of. So, you know, the only ways that that, that we we got to avoid being taken over by you wealthy elite is by um, doing everything the wealthy elite says and being led by them. That's what, I mean, it will go on to say. Well, something you mentioned earlier too about the dehumanizing narrative and all of this stuff, calling people hackable animals. Well, historically, um, a lot of uh, eugenics, eugenics tinged uh, governments or organizations, when they get power, when they start to dehumanize a certain segment or large segments of the population, uh, that is often uh, followed by um, very nasty acts, often genocides. I mean, if you look at genocides historically, uh, there is always um, this effort by that particular state or the entity committing the genocide to dehumanize and compare, and really, well, not compare, equate. Uh, that particular group of humans with animals. I think you could take the extreme example as how uh, the Aborigines were once defined as um, flora and fauna so that they could be treated badly. I mean, we can take it to the extremes because we're going back towards extremes. We're not entering into a new world of peace and harmony in their books. It's their own utopia they're creating, not our utopia. Well, that's a, that, that, that was a really good point, but I also want to point out, too, what he says earlier on. He's talking about how the, the system is going to uh, be able to predict your behavior and manipulate you emotionally and all of this stuff. It's important to point out, and he makes this explicit later, the system are going to be algorithms. Algorithms are going to become the ultimate authorities. So that means behavioral prediction, emotional manipulation. Uh, these, I mean, a lot of this is already done by the state now, right? But it's going to be... Um, you know, algorithms that are ultimately in charge of emotionally manipulating you and making the decisions for your lives, predicting what you need before you need it and giving it to you. And uh, it's not exactly like you can be like, hey, algorithm, this isn't working. You know, it's the almighty algorithm, right? They're becoming the, the algorithm's going to become the authority. Um, and so, of course, it's also, um, I also want to uh, point out to this whole uh, behavioral prediction thing. I mean, obviously, the tie into pre-crime there and uh, not just pre-crime, but like pre-thought crime and all of this stuff at some point um, are very uh, critical aspects of this system. It can't work without it. Um, so, and, you know, there's no coincidence that we're seeing this growth in both uh, predictive crime, pred predictive policing and predictive diagnoses in healthcare because they're trying to bring a lot of these surveillance systems and the healthcare system really together. Um, and he talks about that a little bit later on too. So we can move on if you want and get to some of that. 
yeah, just I probably just want to say um, that that uh, it's interesting that he says about when um, the, the governments and tyrants have always wanted to hack into people and always wanted, but they never had the ability. He, he uses the two examples of the Gestapo and the KGB, but I think it would be uh, much more equivalent to say uh, CIA um, because the CIA yeah. have been responsible for that and they have been doing so we should mention that we should be at least say that the state that well the Gestapo and the KGB weren't advanced enough to do it but the people that came afterwards have been doing it for donkey's years and yeah. they've been trying yeah. to control you and at first it was at the low levels taking over little programs on TV all the programs you like and spewing facts into your brain now it's a different way now it's spewing facts straight directly from your black mirror up into your face the phone you're looking into all of the time is is there telling you what they want you to uh think in the same way still happening now um that's what propaganda is that's what the mainstream press is uh we all know it but most mainstream press nowadays is really like co-opted intelligence dash state media uh organizations rather than free and fair um organization uh, press organizations isn't it's so hard to find journalism nowadays I don't want to keep on that fact. Oh, go on. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Back to the video. The power to hack human beings can, of course, be used for good purposes, like providing much better health care. Oh, there but it is. This power mm -hmm. falls into the hands of a 21st century Stalin. The result will be the worst totalitarian regime in human history. And we already have a number of applicants for the job of 21st century Stalin. Just imagine North Korea in 20 years when everybody has to wear a biometric bracelet which constantly monitors your blood pressure, your heart rate, your brain activity, 24 hours a day. You listen to a speech on the radio by the great leader and they know what you actually feel. You can clap your hands and smile but if you're angry, they know you'll be in the gulag tomorrow morning. And if oh we God. allow the emergence of such total surveillance regimes, don't think that the rich and powerful in places like Davos will be safe. Just mm -hmm. ask Jeff Bezos. In Stalin's USSR, the state monitored members of the communist elite more than anyone else. The same will be true of future total surveillance regimes. The higher you are in the hierarchy, the more closely you will be watched. Do you want your CEO or your president to know what you really think about them? So it's in the interest of all humans, including the elites, to prevent the rise of such digital dictatorships. Well, as we'll see here in a little bit, uh, preventing its rise to Harari means creating a, a global governance structure that controls these technologies and uses them. And this is also the part of the speech where he makes it very explicit that the agenda is to surveil not just a person's external environment, but a person and, and what they do externally, like where they go, who they talk to, things like that, but also a person's mental and emotional life on such a level that most people can't even fathom it, right? Because so far they can, to an extent, build emotional and mental profiles on you based on like your social media posts. 
you know, for example, in, in your text messaging and in your phone calls and things like that, but really getting inside of you and finding out what you really think and feel, uh, even if what you're projecting or doing externally is the opposite. So, you know, no place to hide um, at that point. And so uh, it's also no coincidence here that he brings up this, you know, healthcare, which I mentioned, you know, just a second ago is getting tied into this internal surveillance agenda. And it's actually in his World Economic Forum speech in 2018, where Harari openly talks about this is years before COVID, right? Talks about that people will be willing to give up their privacy, most willing to give up their privacy in the field of healthcare in exchange for better healthcare. People will readily give up uh, their privacy and gladly become part of this new exploited class within the useless class, uh, as long as it means better health care for them. And just wait for this uh, in internal surveillance agenda healthcare hybrid to get merged into the push uh, in the U.S. specifically for Medicare for all. I think that's a total inevitability um, at some point. They're going to co-opt that and, and use it to be like, yeah, we'll give you free health care. But, you know, it's going to double as this internal surveillance system. So people will be like, yay, we got what we want. But uh, now we're being sent to prison for thought crime. Uh, I don't think that's a really fair trade off, honestly. I mean, I, I don't know. I really hope people in that uh, particular policy sphere uh, get wise to what people like Harari and these great resetters um, are saying. But, you know, preventing uh, its rise in all of this, I mean, Harari again here is trying to be like, we uh, must take action now or this will happen. Uh, and But I think ultimately the elite he's talking to, um, you know, the technology, uh, they know this technology will empower and elevate them even further. They've been setting up the infrastructure for it for decades. They're obviously going to use it. They put so much time and investment into it, and they really see it as their only way out to maintain the status quo uh, going forward and this growing and, and allowed the inequality gap to grow even more. I mean, they require these kind of control systems and, and they know it. So the elite think they can prevent the rise of whatever undesirable consequences could come from these technologies if they are the ones to build it and control it themselves because they think then they can control its consequences. And, you know, at the end of his speech here, we'll see in a couple minutes, right, he makes it very explicit that it's the leaders in this room, literally the people he's talking to who he thinks need these horrible tools in their toolkit to prevent the rise of something worse, they say. Um, but, you know, it's basically you're getting the same shit. And this is just a, you know, a marketing ploy uh, for it. Well, well, what I see when uh, they, they, they say a nice fallacy in there, he says uh, he uses a nice fallacy. He says the higher you are in the hierarchy, the more closely you will be watched. Like almost saying to the people out there, the useless class, you'll be barely be watched at all. But it's not about that. It's not about um, the higher you are in the hierarchy, the, um, the more closely you will be watched. It's what they can do to you when they punish you for what they don't like when they're watching. They're, the, the people in the top of the hierarchy will have, be less likely to be punished, will be less likely to be uh, reprimanded for bad behavior, disciplined. They'll be able to get away with it. But everybody at the top will know what they're doing. So, well, so they'll also be less likely to, to. They'll also be less likely to dissent, right? Because they'll have more privileges as part of this. Yeah. Like, you know, they have. Way they're already. They're already in on the game. They're already yeah. got, they've already got massive. So they're less of a threat, right? They're that. less likely yeah. to dissent. And so that's part of it too. But then Harari in some other speeches basically talks about what he mentioned earlier, how there's going to be this huge separation 
uh, he, he frames it in this speech in wealth inequality, right, between the ruling class and the useless class. But in some other speeches, he talks about when you add in the combination of that with transhumanism, you're basically going to have these two classes be uh, essentially different species in uh, sometime yeah. in the next century, you know, which is really crazy to think about. So obviously, you know, these tools will be directed on one group by the other group. And it's not going to be, oh, the elites are going to be in the same boat as the rest of us. Um, they're setting it up. So it's not that way. Um, and obviously, since he's talking to the people who are setting all this up, I mean, he's not going to be like, you know, making that explicit because this is a forum, uh, you know, all these public agendas uh, that they do in these public videos, it's about marketing their ideas uh, to the masses, really. Um, And that's why, you know, this Davos 2021 is all focused on building trust, building trust with who? Uh, The people they need uh, to consent for political legitimacy still until they can consolidate enough troll where they don't they don't need it anymore, like we were talking about, right? So that's what yeah. this all comes down to. So that's why you're seeing, you know, these points being brought up and in, in the way they're framing it this way. But if you break it down and you consider who the core audience is and you follow a lot of these ideas of their logical conclusion, you know, it ends up being a different picture than what Harari is ultimately painting. So we have to see this really as a sales pitch for the Great Reset. But holy crap, uh, some creepy stuff, huh? <laughs> yeah 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 you have to realize they've pulled down a little bit of a curtain um on uh one of these parts by you know really separating the fact that there's all, all humans interests uh including the elite and the elite of the morning and, and we're here rich and powerful like davos will be safe uh, that's just bezos the the elites will be safe uh, if they're all involved and all they're all on board and they're all on board and they're all involved um they, they're quite happy to come in um whether that me what that means in the future usually doesn't concern rich people uh usually doesn't concern the wealthy because they'll still be living a high standard of life while the rest of the world is having their houses repossessed and they're out on the streets and can't afford um uh their money uh they, they, to live sorry um what were you just saying sorry then i just had something run through my mind which i thought was really important but i think i've lost it uh crap um i totally <laughs> forgot because i was ready to move on to the next clip yeah so. let's do it let's do it let's move on to <laughs> yeah the next all right and in the meantime if you get a suspicious whatsapp message from some prince don't open it now even if we indeed prevent the establishment of digital dictatorships, the ability to hack humans might still undermine the very meaning of human freedom. Because as humans will rely on AI to make more and more decisions for us, authority will shift from humans to algorithms. And this is already happening. Already today, billions of people trust the Facebook algorithm to tell us what is new. The Google algorithm tells us what is true. Netflix tells us what to watch, and the Amazon and Alibaba algorithms tell us what to buy. In the not so distant future, similar algorithms might tell us where to work and whom to marry, and also decide whether to hire us for a job, whether to give us a loan, and whether the central bank should raise the interest rate. And if you ask why you were not given a loan, or why 
the bank didn't raise the interest rate, the answer will always be the same. Because the computer says no. And since the limited human brain lacks sufficient biological knowledge, computing power, and data, humans will simply not be able to understand the computer's decisions. So even in supposedly free countries, humans are likely to lose control over our own lives and also lose the ability to understand public policy. Well, that last line, I think, is really important because he, he talks about that even in supposedly free countries. So I guess that's addressed like to the West, right? You think you're yeah. free. You think you're in control of your country. Well, uh, you know, this new this coming whatever this new revolution, this fourth industrial revolution, uh, all humans are likely or pretty much guaranteed to lose control over their own lives. Um, so, you know, that says a Could lot. Also mm -hmm. It could also mean that, um, I mean, he could mean it in a sense that right now, so even in supposedly free countries, in supposedly free countries, because none of you are free. You're already, they already, they already know they've got you, uh, got you under the thumb and they're just keeping, um, it that way. And you're right. That sentence, humans are likely to con uh, lose control over our own lives and also lose the ability to understand public policy. Now, We've already lost the ability to understand public policy. Again, what's new? Um, they don't even allow us to talk about public policy. If you yeah. wanted to talk about public policy, about the fitting of the next generation of telephone masts, nope, not allowed to say. You want to talk about COVID-19 or coronavirus um, from a public policy perspective? Not the public. Public ain't allowed to talk about it. We're already in a position where we don't understand public policy because it's opaque. It's hidden away from us, and it's purposely done in that way. There's nothing going to be different in that sense apart from they are going to be more overt, and they're going to say it to your face. Right. So a really good example of this in the public policy world that's ongoing right now um, are how COVID lockdowns are being decided. And allegedly, California, I think just a week ago, maybe two weeks ago, said they want to reveal uh, the list of criteria um, in, in, you know, methods and statistical tools or whatever that they're using to determine all these different important statistics that are informing their lockdown policy there. Because if they did, it may mislead the public, right? Um, and you have a lot of other institutions, you know, like the Federal Reserve, right, um, that no one really, you know, we've already lost the ability to understand their public policy. I mean, their meetings are private now. They got that passed with the COVID bill last year. They don't have to have make their meeting minutes transparent anymore, you know. So, I mean, they were already making moves like that. And a lot of stuff about the financial system, for example, uh, you know, it's already been moved to the algorithm. So, you know, like I was real saying, public earlier, policy <laughs> discussion. Well, mm -hmm. I was going to say just real public policy discussion, including the public, is a thing of the past and has been now for more than a year. Yeah, but this place is in their hands, right? They don't want us discussing public policy because they don't care mm. about our opinion. We're the useless class. But this is another form of them taking away our rights one by one, one by one, little by little in little areas. So soon we'll not have any of it. Right. So let's go on to the, the next clip because he goes into a little more detail here. Already now, how many humans really understand the financial system? Maybe 1% to be very generous. In a couple of decades, the number of humans capable of understanding the financial system will be exactly zero. 
Now, we humans are used to thinking about life as a drama of decision-making. What will be the meaning of human life when most decisions are taken by algorithms? We don't even have philosophical models to understand such an existence. The usual bargain between philosophers and politicians is that philosophers have a lot of fanciful ideas and politicians patiently explain that they lack the means to implement these ideas. Now we are in an opposite situation. We are facing philosophical bankruptcy. The twin revolutions of infotech and biotech are now giving politicians and business people the means to create heaven or hell but the philosophers are having trouble conceptualizing what the new heaven and the new hell will look like. And that's a very dangerous situation. If we fail to conceptualize the new heaven quickly enough, we might be easily misled by naive utopias. And if we fail to conceptualize the new hell quickly enough, we might find ourselves entrapped there with no way out. Well, I think whether it's their version of heaven or hell, uh, we will be entrapped there with no way out if we allow them to advance. But I think that's by design, right? Because the whole point is to prevent uh, the status quo from really ever being challenged ever again. I mean, once you go as far as they want to go and install a technocracy and surveillance inside and outside of the human body, I mean, uh, entrapped with, with no way out, there you are, <laughs> you know, especially when yeah. it's inside your body. I mean, I think it's pretty clear. Uh, how, how entrapped uh, the whole, I mean, it's designed to entrap you, basically. Yep, yep, yep. Um, one of the things that, uh, that I noticed from that as well is that he's, uh, if we fail to conceptualize a new heaven quickly enough. Now, he's not saying be quick about this, be slow about this, sorry. He's not saying be calm, be careful about this. We need to be careful, like anybody sensible would say. He's saying we need to think about this quickly, come to a decision quickly, quickly, quickly. If we don't think about the new hell quick enough, then we're going to, if we don't think about the new heaven quick enough, then we're, it's all urgency. It's all a matter of, oh, this is happening now, whether you like it or not. So let's make it happen, all of you guys, because we don't want it to happen. Well, this is, <laughs> Which is... But this is also the part of the speech where Harari is signifying his own importance to this movement, too, where he's talking about the importance of philosophers and, and the problems he's pointing out. Well, no one has made philosophical models to understand such an existence, but Noah Harari does. <clears throat> and Noah Harari thinks yes, yes, yes. about these things, yes? So then he goes like, you know, the usual bargain between philosophers and, and politicians that follow philosophers have these ideas and, po and politicians, you know, make up these excuses. But now it's the opposite because there's, you know, no philosophers with ideas. Philosophy is bankrupt unless, of course, you're a futurist philosopher of the Great Reset like uh, Noah Harari that has all the knows exactly how to get us out of this mess, which is global cooperation, global solutions for global problems, mm -hmm. um, as we will see. Um, in a little bit here. Actually, we can move on to that if if you want, unless you want to. Um... Well, I, 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 there, there is there. There was only um uh, one other thing I wanted to say was this is the start of them him using um is true the true point of this, which is he mentions heaven, he mentions hell. He's about to start mentioning very soon godlike creation yeah. abilities. 
yeah. going towards this. If we don't work out how to be God quickly is what he's going to actually be saying. And that sentence, uh, if we fail to conceptualize our heaven, we're creating heaven. In his mind, we're creating heaven and or we're creating hell. We're creating something beyond our understanding. And again, like he said earlier, we've got to realize we're not mysterious souls anymore. I'm not sure everybody will agree with you, Noah. I think there's a lot of people who say, yeah, you're a mysterious soul, but you're going to be ending up listening to whatever your computer tells me to listen to. Anyway, let's go on. Finally, technology might disrupt not just our economy and politics and philosophy, but also our biology. In the coming decades, AI and biotechnology will give us godlike abilities to re-engineer life and even to create completely new life forms. After four billion years of organic life shaped by natural selection, we are about to enter a new era of inorganic life shaped by intelligent design. Our intelligent design <sighs> is a new force in the evolution of life. And in using our new divine powers of creation, oh. we might make mistakes on a cosmic scale. In particular, governments, corporations, and armies are likely to use technology to enhance human skills that they need like intelligence and discipline, while neglecting other human skills, like compassion, artistic sensitivity, and spirituality. The result might be a race of humans who are very intelligent and very difficult, but lack compassion, lack artistic sensitivity, and lack spiritual depth. Yeah, well, the border on the way, huh? Yeah, 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 yeah. And this is just unbelievable what he goes in and says here, because this yeah. is really where he just opens up. He becomes a little bit more himself and you can see it. Uh, also, also, he, he again, he states something that what has changed when he says um, uh, our intelligent design. I mean, that's got to be debatable from the off whether this is going to be intelligent design, because they're already saying that the, the, the things that they're using to create these things are not going to be ready and they're not going to be very good so that's not very intelligent that's not even design that's like you've you put some you've nearly designed something you have to finish it to design it not for it to be partially complete uh, um but but he says our new divine powers of creation i mean this is something like hitler would say you know our new divine power of creation we might make mistakes on a cosmic scale but let's do it anyway <laughs> I mean, mistakes on a cosmic scale, it cannot be underestimated how stupid it would be to do something that could could end up being um, uh, a mistake on a cosmic scale. That's just crazy. Um, and then he goes on to say in particular, and this is what I mean by, uh, again, um, what has changed, is in particular, governments, corporations, and armies are likely to use technology to enhance human skills that they need, like intelligence and discipline, 
well, it's different, while neglecting other human skills like compassion, artistic sensitivity, and spirituality. When has the army ever been about artistic sensitivity or spirituality or compassion? They, they, they're already, that's already non-existence. They might, they might just do that. No, they, they, they've already been doing it for years. Of course they're going to do it. We already know they're going to do it, but just admit that they're doing it now, would you? Instead of saying, oh, this is what could happen. You know, all of these different bad things, they're already there. We're already here. We're already in the cesspool, and we have been for a long time. And lots of people with their closed eyes who haven't woken up to this are now being told for the first time by people like this in places like the World Economic Forum exactly what has been a very long time but you're being presented like it's something new and fresh a risk that was created by our technological advancement people who have created the technological advancement and aimed it directly at us like uh, they would a gun Right. Well, it's worth pointing out, too, that, you know, if governments, corporations and armies are the ones that are going to be in charge of using this technology to enhance people on particular traits, well, not only are they going to enhance human skills that they need, and I don't think they're just going to neglect other human skills, but they may downgrade human skills or abilities that are inconvenient to them, you know, like the capacity for critical thinking or independent thought. For example, willingness to go in against the grain, um, when do, when does bravery, that happen? Uh, among numerous other human traits, you know, that are very inconvenient to them. Um, they this may isn't target the directly an attack, right? So it's not just enhance and neglect, you know, and he kind of keeps that out. And what do you think governments, corporations, and armies are going to do with this kind of stuff? I mean, DARPA has been working on their super soldier program uh, for like, what, three decades now? And it's all about uh, doing exactly what he says there, augmenting intelligence and, and discipline and getting in people's brains, reading and writing memories. Uh, I mean, there's your emo emotional manipulation by algorithms right there when they can just uh, create new memories for you and make you think things and whatever. And another thing I wanted to bring up is how he talks about we're entering a new era specifically of inorganic life shaped by intelligent design. And then he goes on to say immediately after our intelligent design. So where he, they're talking about earlier re-engineering life and all of that stuff, well, some people could be like, oh, well, that's gene editing, maybe like GMOs of plants and stuff like that. But this is inorganic life. This is telling you straight up that this is trans, a transhumanist future um, that mm -hmm. they are going to shape our intelligent design. I mean, it's a pretty big And why there. wouldn't they? And why... Why wouldn't they when they got godlike abilities to re-engineer life? I mean, that that, that part of the sentence, that part of the, the speech, you, you're talking about a divine powers of creation and godlike abilities to re-engineer life. He, you know, this is something that we are on. They're telling us we're on. We've all got to wake up to the fact that this is dangerous beyond anything we've ever had before. Because, you know, the difference between genocides before is that people had to be killed slowly because it wasn't enough capacity. This is a way, and eventually, that if a genocide was to happen, it wouldn't be slow anymore. It could be very fast. So we've got to realize that this ups the stakes in every single um, area of what we should be looking out for, what we should be worried about because of things that have happened in the past. Yeah. And, and going back really quick, I want to contrast, contrast some of this rhetoric with how he talks about the useless class and hackable animals. When he's talking about our new divine powers of creation, is he talking about the useless, the useless class and the hackable animals being in charge of uh, those powers of creation? 
Well, I don't think so because then they wouldn't be useless and they wouldn't be, um, uh, you know, uh, fighting between exploited and irrelevant, right? So the people that are going to have these divine powers of creation, as he calls it, it shows you that they, you know, don't, how they view themselves compared to these inferior hackable animals, right? We're going to have, we're the divinity now, you know, we have these, we're going, we're about to have these new divine powers of creation, but not only that, we will be the, our intelligence, our intelligent design will be the new driving force of evolution itself, right? So that tells Wildly you what the huge class. God complex these people have, right? Mm -hmm. And and all of this, a lot of this speech, if you read it and you properly analyze the words he use, uh, uses, then um, uh, you will see that it is very much a projection of what we've, people like us have been saying the World Economic Forum is all about anyway. It's a projection of that. They're projecting out what they've been doing what they've always done, and what they'll continue to do in the future. This is less a presentation to tell people how it's going to go, um, as a less a presentation to tell people how it could be, to more a presentation on how it's going to go, and we've all got to be on board. Right. So this is the part of the speech where Harari's whole uh, uh, pitch starts to change a little bit, and he's like, well, I know a solution to all of these things. You think what I said sounded bad? I mean, who doesn't, right? Uh, well, there is something you can do to stop it. So let's hear a little bit about what he thinks the solution to everything bad is. Of course, this is not a prophecy. These are just possibilities. Technology is never deterministic. In the 20th century, people used industrial technology to build very different kinds of societies. Fascist dictatorships, communist regimes, liberal democracies. The same thing will happen in the 21st century. AI and biotech will certainly transform the world, but we can use them to create very different kinds of societies. And if you are afraid of some of the possibilities I've mentioned, you can still do something about it. But to do something effective, we need global cooperation. All the three existential challenges we face are global problems that demand global solutions. There it is. Global What a problems surprise. Demand global solutions. We're well, about to hear the global stuff coming thick and fast now because this is where they, what what they they need to sell they need to sell globalism now because they're enacting it so you're you if you weren't a globalist before you gotta be now it's gotta be this is the big sell right and it's interesting that he says that it has to be you know we can't ha do anything about all the stuff he talks about unless there's global cooperation but if you look at it look at it from the the viewpoint of, of the elite building this technocracy, right? Uh, they require global cooperation because they can't have states that exist as refuges from their technocratic system, right? They have to have everywhere on board, whether it's through conquest via data colonies or, or some other means, they need everyone on board. And that's ultimately what these people uh, mean by global cooperation. It's not just everyone comes together and sings Kumbaya, but everyone is marching lockstep right in the uh towards the same you know in service to the same agenda whether they it was their idea to or not right so you know that's sort of a different take maybe on what these people mean when they say things like global cooperation versus how the masses may see that but let's get into some of this stuff that he lays out uh uh in terms of global solutions and and what have you 
whenever any leader says something like, my country first, we should remind that leader that no nation can prevent nuclear war or stop ecological collapse by itself. And no nation can regulate AI and bioengineering by itself. Almost every country will say, hey, we don't want to develop killer robots or to genetically engineer human babies. We are the good guys. But we can't trust our rivals not to do it. So we must do it first. If we allow such an arms race to develop in fields like AI and bioengineering, it doesn't really matter who wins the arms race. The loser will be humanity. Well, you know, as I pointed out a little bit ago, uh, the arms race is con a controlled opposition arms race, basically. You know, another example of that is like the cross-pollination of money when it comes to like these Chinese bioengineering firms or big tech firms um, and U.S. entities um, or, you know, uh, uh, Israeli tech uh, executives and Unit 8200 stuff and all that stuff. I mean, it's all mixed together on both sides. Um, and so if they're really, you know, all about this arms race, why is there so much interaction? You know, why haven't they gone after a ton of these big U.S. hedge funds and venture capital funds that are funding the arms race uh, in China on the other side and all of this stuff? I mean, it's all, um, you know, to a big extent theater in that uh, what he said earlier about, oh, well, we're the good guys, but we can't trust our rivals to do it. So we have to do it first is basically word for word what people like Eric Schmidt say and these military guys that are involved in this AI modernization push in, in league with the National Security Commission on AI, the Silicon Valley intelligence community, you know, hybrid, you, you know, that's how they sell their policies, right? But they're all working behind the scenes uh, because it, like he says, it doesn't matter who wins the arms race, the loser will be humanity. And that's the whole freaking point. That's the whole point of this game they're playing. Yeah. This game is uh, is end game. Uh, for them, at least, um, and for us, yes. Uh, almost every country will, he says, will say, almost every country will say, not might say, may say, we all know what every country will say. They'll all say, we've got to be on the band. We're going to have to invent this thing first. We've seen it over and over again in humanity. We know what this is. This is an arms, arms race to the end of humanity again. Another one. Uh, always controlled by the powerful elites, always controlled by nation states, um, always called conspiracies while they're happening, always found to be true afterwards. Um, but this one is on a level that we have uh, no one understand. Earlier on, uh, the, 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 the section before, he did say that um, technology isn't deterministic, but it depends how powerful the technology is. Because if uh, technology is powerful enough and becomes beyond our control, then it is deterministic. The end of humanity is is. If you put it in the people's brains... And they can't get it out, <laughs> you know, know. Uh, yeah. kind of deterministic. Yeah. All right. So the next uh, next part, he talks about nationalism and, and globalism. Uh, so you want to go into that? Yeah. Already. Fortunately, just when global cooperation is more needed than ever before, some of the most powerful leaders and countries in the world are now deliberately undermining global cooperation. Leaders like the U.S. president tell us that there is an inherent contradiction between nationalism and globalism, and that we should choose nationalism and reject globalism. But this is a dangerous mistake. There is no <laughs> contradiction 
between nationalism and globalism because nationalism isn't about hating foreigners. Nationalism is about loving your compatriots. And in the 21st century, in order to protect the safety and the future of your compatriots, you must cooperate with foreigners. So in the 20th century, in the 21st century, sorry, good <coughs> nationalists must be also globalists. Now, globalism oh. <laughs> establishing a global government, abandoning all national traditions, or opening the border to unlimited immigration. Rather, globalism means a commitment to some global rules. Rules that don't deny the uniqueness of each nation, but only regulate relations between nations. Hmm. Well, what if the, the global rules that everyone commits to starts to include, you must abandon all national traditions, you must open the border to uh, unlimited people, or, you know, you must now participate in this global government we've made. I mean, that, I mean, that's not necessarily true what he says, where globalism only really means a commitment to some global rules. I mean, they can start it off that way and move it, you know, farther, however they want it. So that's pretty uh, a silly argument, in my opinion. But I also think yeah. it's, it's notable here how he talks about good nationalists must also be globalists, sort of creating this division with there's bad nationalism. And there's good nationalism, but good nationalism is actually globalism. I mean, this is, I think, intended to confuse people to an extent and sort of I mean, uh, give a childlike, super, extremely superficial explanation of what national, what nationalism is and what motivates it and why we've seen a resurgence well, of think, it, why we're seeing this push for global government. I think what we're seeing here is um, something that uh, always fallacies are built upon, which is uh, framing the argument in a way that suits their argument so they can make their argument really well. Um, yes, global cooperation is always needed, but there is... Con there are contradictions between nationalism and globalism. There always has been, of course. Nationalism is about nation states. And what they've done, how he's redefined it, is by saying, and, and in a sense, using like uh, uh, people, if you disagree with it, he says, um, because, well, no, nationalism isn't about hating foreigners. Whoever said that? You just frame that into being about that nationalism is about hating foreigners. But you can tell that to people who are like, yeah, okay, nationalism is about hating foreigners. I like foreigners. I, I I meet people from all over the world. It's very interesting. I eat lots of food from different countries. I take in lots of new cultural things. I, I find it very interesting. That, but then there's still loads of people who do see it that way. They see foreigners as a threat and they are still nationalists you can't define them as something else they're still nationalists because that's where nationalism often ends up the ending point of nationalism when there's been mass immigration and there's been pushes from uh many wars uh to for, for uh mass uh, migration of people that you're you're going to find that people lose frustration with foreign people we know this has happened we've always known this has happened just say nationalism isn't about hating foreigners because sometimes to some people nationalism is about hating foreigners so he's redefining what nationalism means as a term and i'm not saying nationalism is all about that i'm saying that's a part of it but you can't say it doesn't exist nationalism is about loving your compatriots well, it's not only about that because most people who live in a country hate 
you'll you always find that you'll find that people hate this people from the same country um in in britain we've got we've got that in football rivalry which we'll talk about soon where or soccer rivalry where um in in britain uh, in wales for instance my own place uh got cardiff uh, we hate the people from swansea and we hate the people from newport and vice versa and etc and we'll say it to them as well we'll be like oh you you're scummy you are and they'll be like oh you're no you're scummy you know and it's all part of this game of it, it however small you look at it we'll always be playing those games of um we don't trust the foreigners people from uh cardiff don't trust people from swansea or people who don't trust people, yet we're still the same nation state. It's very easy to remember when they describe things, they do it within the borders that have been written out by men thousands of years ago. And then they stick to those so that they can build their narrative around it, so they can frame the arguments like, oh, there's no contradiction between it, really, and um, uh, because nationalism is about... Well, maybe that's what, what nationalism is about to Yuval Noah Harari, but the whole world is different, and you accept only one... They accept only one point of view in this and that's something that's projected out with a lot of what he says the one point of view well like you know this is a super reductive argument he's making so he's saying like bad nationalism right is about hating foreigners and good nationalism is loving your compatriots and there's no difference between nationalism and globalism this is an extension of this whole argument that nationalism is hate driven and globalism people like the world economic forum are love driven we're going to build the new world with love and the Green New Deal and all of this stuff, yeah. how they make it unsustainable and inclusive and all of these these buzzwords. We're building a better world. We're going to build back better and all of this stuff. You know, they're, they're making this super reductive argument so they can, you know, paint things as black and white and they can make themselves the white hats, I guess, make themselves look mm -hmm. like that anyway, at least in terms of when you have people like Harari out there making their, their case for this ideology. But, you know, it's super reductive. Um, and uh, it's obviously when, aimed at manipulating people's opinions about what nationalism and globalism is. I mean, something as complex as nationalism or uh, n nationalist responses uh, to illegal immigration or something, you can't just reduce to something as simple as hate. And a lot of those cases, illegal immigrant flows, using the U.S. as an example, um, most of the people that cross the U.S.-Mexico border illegally aren't even from Mexico. A lot of them are from places like Honduras, where the Clinton State Department uh, overthrew the government, helped organize a coup um, that has been brutally repressing people there. And most of the people fleeing Honduras or crossing into the Mexico border illegally and taking the jobs and all of that stuff that the people, you know, in the U.S. government are, you know, I, I mean, that doesn't translate, oh, they hate foreigners, you know, I mean, a lot of that, the, the complexities of the situation get left out when you reduce it to the, oh, they hate and we represent love and they represent hate and we are good and they are bad. I mean, it's just this simplistic stuff. And you have to remember too, they've made it very clear that, you know, they are the intelligent designers and we are the hackable animals. So, you know, this is clearly this reductive, dumbed down, very superficial argument is aimed at hackable animals and not at intelligent designers who, you know, know how these uh, things really work. Um, you know, this well, is an argument made for us. He also says nationalism and globalism aren't mutually exclusive, but I would change that sentence to be correct rather than um, wrong, like he's got it, which is nationalism and globalism are mostly mutually exclusive. <laughs> they, 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 they have a Venn diagram and it's very little crossover on them, but there is a tiny bit of crossover, true. They're not mutually exclusive completely, 
they're mostly mutually exclusive. But that's not what he's saying there, of course, because he's redefining what everything is, what the, the what everything means for us. Um, and this is a a big. This is another uh, way to manufacture consent for the the Great Reset and the globalist takeover. Because totally. obviously he's just saying globalists are good. Globalism doesn't mean establishing global governments. Globalism means commitment to some global rules. Globalism doesn't mean establishing global government, apart from the fact when you'll be establishing global government work. I mean, the, he's lying directly to people. He's lying directly to people. It does mean that. It does mean Noah. Uh, Yuval Noah Harari is lying on stage, but he's able to do it to the elites because the elites all nod in a state of hypernormalization. And we don't matter because we're the useless class. Right. Well, uh, let's let Harari develop his uh, shitty argument a little bit more. <laughs> mm -hmm. And a good model is the Football World Cup. The World Cup <coughs> is a competition between nations, and people often show fierce loyalty to their national team. But at the same time, the World Cup is also an amazing display of global harmony. France can't play football against Croatia unless the French and Croatians agree on the same rules for the game. And that's globalism in action. If you like the World Cup, you're already a globalist. Now, hopefully, Nations could agree on global rules, not just for football, but also for how to prevent ecological collapse, how to regulate dangerous technologies, and how to reduce global inequality. How to make sure, for example, that AI benefits Mexican textile workers and not only American software engineers. Now, of course, this is going to be much more difficult than football, but not impossible. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you have a lot to say about this with the FIFA comparison. So, um, yeah, well, FIFA is one of the most corrupt organizations in the world, and of course, the, the the thing that sets up the World Cup. And I've investigated as a lot as well as other people have investigated the corruption. It's always deep. It's always terrible. It makes you feel sick. Uh, the, the this idea that the World Cup is also an amazing display of global harmony. Well, uh, France can play football against Croatia. France can't play football against Croatia unless the Croatians agree on the same rules of the game. But it really what that does is is make the people who decide on the game and the people playing the game the elites and all of the rest of the people the useless class um in that is because we don't have a say over any of that we don't have a say the people who are on top and the people who are in control of it have a say of the rules and right. loads of people who are fans so FIFA who are the normal and people the players Sorry, no, oh, I was just going to say like FIFA and the players, right, and the coaches and whatever are the elite and all the fans, right, are, are the rest of us and we're just spectators. Oh, yeah, yeah, and we're spectators and that's what they're stating in today. If you want to use 
wants to use this example of one of the most corruptest of competitions in the world, I think that's perfect. I think that the, the World Cup and the way World Cup to decide it is by a global elite, usually in Switzerland with FIFA. I believe they're based in Switzerland as <laughs> yes. well. Um, so it was set black to the most, uh, I, I think next to Berlusconi, he must be the most corrupt man on earth. Like, you know, you could just tell by looking at him, he has corruption dripping off him, but he's been involved in more scandals than I cooked dinners as they say um this whole idea that that it works well tell that to the fans who are fighting out there on the streets because they lost against each other tell that to the riots that occur from the many more people than the people who took part in the game who are all fighting about whether or not it's better to be english or um you know we saw that in the the last uh what the last euros that we got to play because this one last one got cancelled we saw the russians and the english in street battles um across france i mean street battles they were running throwing all the windows were broken perfect global harmony harmony there how they globally harmonize people's faces to be convex or concave instead of convex (laughs) it's quite 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 amazing um there's so much as well global solutions for global problems is it he states it again just just there if you like the world cup you're already a globalist i like the world cup I hate everything about the structure and the way the World Cup is built. I am not a globalist for sure. I hate the idea that someone in a faraway country who I've got no accountability at all will get to run my life. And I'm pretty positive that nearly the majority of all football fans are more likely to be of working class background, more likely to be against globalism, and more likely to be heading towards nationalism, And is which is why they're interested in supporting their national team, which is a bit obvious. Uh, and it's quite amazing when he mentions at the end as well. I just want to say when he mentions at the end um, that, for example, we need to make sure that AI benefits uh, Mexican textile workers and not just American software engineers. Wait one second. There's, you've already <laughs> said it. There will be no Mexican textile workers. So what you want to be saying there, really, if you want to, for example, we need to make sure AI benefits the useless class instead of the elites, because that's not what they're saying and that's not what they intend to do. All Mexican textile workers are going to be um, laid off and replaced with machineries, uh, and and the Mexican textile worker, workers that AI will benefit will be machine workers. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, he like you said, he already laid it out to you when he's like, oh, it's just going to be a couple high tech powered hubs where all the engineers are and the, the software uh, developers and all the people that, do, you know, maintain this techno- technocratic global system. Right. Um, it's going to be them and the textile workers aren't going to be in the textile factories very soon. You know, he, he made this all really clear. But I guess once he gets to this point, he just <coughs> wants you to think about inclusivity and we got to think of the little guy he's contradicts himself a lot like you said uh before we even started really um and it's no coincidence that this guy is a contradiction in and of himself a futurist historian right so i mean he's an expert in moving back and forth uh when it when it serves his um his message so um with that being said unless there's something else you want to add we'll get into his uh his thoughts about the jungle and and peace let's go Because the impossible, well, we have already accomplished the impossible. We've already escaped the violent jungle in which we humans have lived throughout history. For thousands of years, humans lived 
under the law of the jungle in a condition of omnipresent war. The law of the jungle said that for every two nearby countries, there is a plausible scenario that they will go to war against each other next year. Under this law, peace meant only the temporary absence of war. When there was peace between, say, Athens and Sparta, or France and Germany, it meant that now they are not at war, but next year they might be. And for thousands of years, people had assumed that it was impossible to escape this law. But in the last few decades, humanity has managed to do the impossible, to break the law, and to escape the jungle. We have built the rule-based liberal global order that despite many imperfections, has nevertheless created the most prosperous and most peaceful era in human history. The very meaning of the word peace has changed. Peace no longer means just the temporary absence of war. Peace now means the implausibility of war. There are many countries in the world which you simply cannot imagine going to war against each other next year, like France and Germany. There are still wars in some parts of the world. I come from the Middle East, so believe me, I know this perfectly well. But it shouldn't blind us to the overall global picture. We are now living in a world in which war kills fewer people than suicide, and gunpowder is far less dangerous to your life than sugar. Most countries, with some notable <coughs> exceptions like Russia, don't even fantasize about conquering and annexing their neighbors, which is why most countries can afford to spend maybe just about 2% of their GDP on defense while spending far, far more on education and healthcare. This is not a jungle. Unfortunately, we've gotten so used to this wonderful situation that we take it for granted and we are therefore becoming extremely careless. Instead of doing everything we can to strengthen the fragile global order, countries neglect it and even deliberately undermine it. Well, there's a lot here, huh? So um, I, I guess I'll start off with saying that something that really jumped out to me about this part of the speech is how he talks about the jungle and basically equates living in the jungle uh, with war, right? But this is also like living in the non-tech-infused world where the technolo technology uh, and nature haven't been forcibly fused. And, and things like that, right? Or this re-engineering, these new divine powers in the hands of human haven't existed, right? So like the laws of nature, uh, I, I would, you know, the law of jungle is the law of nature and he's equating that with being war. Um, I don't necessarily think that's an accurate comparison, but it is really common uh, among proponents of transhumanism, this idea, um, and, and really the, the seeds for this go back centuries, this idea that nature is something that has to be dominated, dominated uh, that the natural world is primitive um, and needs to be chaotic and needs to be brought to order 
uh, by man using technology. First, that was through industry. And now they want to go directly to the building blocks of life and impose their intelligent design, their order on what they view as a chaotic system, which is really the natural system, life itself. And this is why they talk about how this uh, technological disruption is about changing the very meaning of human life and really life in general. Um, and they want complete control over it. I mean, these people are so um, insane uh, to such a huge degree. But he's talking about we've left the jungle. and We don't want to go back there. It was super bad and scary. You don't want to go back. Let's go even further out of the jungle um, and build this uh, peace peaceful world that he's talking about, um, you know, but it's really not going to be that. So the implausibility of war, I mean, really what this is about and the system is about is the implausibility, not of war, but of dissent um, of, uh, or, or violent dissent against, you know, the, the inequality gap, the overlords um, and whatever. I mean, that's ultimately the kind of peace that they're looking to establish here. It's not necessarily about the peace um, you know, between nation states or factions or, or whatever. But when he's talking about making, ensuring the implausibility um, of war, I would argue that it's, you know, this whole system is really about, about that, about making dissent uh, impossible um, in going forward from the masses who, if not uh, kept under control, will forcibly drag us all back to the jungle and, and things like that. That seems to be the narrative he's, uh, you know, playing with here. Uh, well, nearly everything he said in that last section is a bundle of crap. It can't <laughs> be described as anything less or uh, it is a bundle of crap. Because the impossible, well, we've already accomplished the impossible. We've already escaped the violent jungle. Acting like the world is in a place of peace and prosperity like it's never seen before. And he goes through this analogy that peace, and I've heard him use this before in other podcasts, um, police before, a peace before was about the um, absence of war, and now it's the implausibility of war. What? The implausibility of war. Every single person knows that we could go to war with someone at any time. We've got, like, America's got three wars planned up that are going to be massive just because they're not in our civilized world our civilized world then they don't class as people they don't class anyway so we won't class that as war and peace yeah, that's just yeah. peace that's that is the time of pros, uh, prosper with that we prospered in the most peaceful era in human history where what well, which, which era is this which era is this that he's talking about the most peaceful era is that the era yeah, where right. they were yeah. killing a million Iraqis is that with the era where they were killing uh Koreans is that the era they were killing Vietnamese is that the era they were killing uh, each other uh, th this is how all of these aiming that so we've left this violent jungle because look we've entered into the future where we all know that, that it's not about peace being the temporary absence of war now it's about this whole thing that there's no war we're prosperous we're brilliant we're perfect we we, we, we are just above it all it's bull it's crap. He is coming across in that section like the stupidest man I've ever heard. He's just like, for a man who's got so many bits after his name, I don't think you can find someone who is more stupid. That is just, uh, it was a lot of what he says there is just nonsense. Um, and is easily provable nonsense as well, because you look around you, this um, world is in a bad 
um, state and has been for a very long time. Well, yeah, um, uh, 20 years of the war on terror, and he's like, this is the era of peace, and the U.S. just goes unilaterally bombs and invades any country it feels like. Um, you know, that's not really an era of, of peace, as I describe it. And it's really ironic that this is, you know, he's an Israeli saying this, right? Because Israel, ever since they were founded in 1948, uh, ha have been perpetually in a state of emergency because they're technically still at war and ever have been ever since they were founded. And that militarization is infused throughout Israeli society, particularly the, their education system. That's why everyone also serves in the armed forces there. So for him to be like, this is an era of peace and he's an Israeli, I mean, it's just like... Um, you know, he's trying to make his solution, uh, you know, sound much better uh, and, is, and is trying to do it in any way possible that he mm -hmm. think will appeal to us hackable animal types, you know. Yeah, because this is the, all spin. The, uh, right. The degree of, of his intellectual uh, or, or his arguments, like uh, the sophistication of his arguments, when he's laying out everything that could go wrong and will go wrong and things like this, or the threats facing us as it relates to technological disruption are in a very different category than his sales pitches for his solution. I think it's really important to point that out and that he uh, starts uh, moving to these very redustic, simplistic, superficial, feel good uh, arguments that are really about like getting an emotional response out of the audience more than really appealing to to critical thinking right and you know if you go back to this idea that he's trying to sell this to the hackable animals and get them to sign on and agree to the co you know the building of their prison to be um, the test subjects to be the animals yeah. <laughs> to be the yeah. hackable animals to be hacked like animals because they're hackable a, animals and, and going back to this hackable identity uh, hackable animal thing uh the only way someone a human being becomes a hackable animal is if they consent to being mm -hmm. a hackable animal. And so if you are like, yes, uh, allow the World Economic Forum and their cronies to treat me and my family as, as livestock because it serves the greater good or otherwise I'll become irrelevant and I don't want that. Well, you are consenting <laughs> uh, to become a hackable animal. You have moved from being human to being something else. And especially people that invite the whole transhumanist existence into their lives and bodies uh then you really have become the hackable animal that they want you to be and that is a choice you will yeah. be making indeed a lot of people already in the world are hackable animals because you can just let them read the newspapers and see the the mainstream news and they believe what they have to do next is based on that information they're already hacked their brains are already hacked in many ways uh, it's just further hacking these guys have been doing it for a long time and when he says um we are now living in a world uh where war kills fewer people than suicide wait a minute number one that's probably because you don't actually give the right number of people who get killed in wars um but also also, uh, that, that this society and the way these elites have pushed people into bankruptcy and into hell, into poverty, has led to more suicides. There's more suicides now, I would argue, because of these bloody people and what oh, yeah. they've already put into place. So saying that, that using that as a point and is, is part is cheeky. It's just cheeky. Um, and how it uh, kills less people... Uh, than sugar all of these companies have been pumping sugar into people for ages at the same time as shooting uh, as, as uh, at least giving money towards shooting people and helping with the shooting people so these guys are all in it they're all in it they're the, they're the ones who are causing the suicide they're the ones in the war they're the ones who use the gunpowder they're the ones who have, have put sugar into everything all the time so they can make money this isn't about uh, how how good can be for you and this is a jungle not in the way he says, and it, we're still in the jungle. 
We're yeah. still in the jungle. We're still being treated like animals. And those guys are the hunters. They're the predators. Know mm-hmm. it. We know they're out there. They see themselves as the apex predators. And they, if they think they can just act like it and it'll happen, that's what they're going to do because that's what they think is going to happen. They don't think that people are going to be able to fight against them. People have got to really wise up that we're in a different stage of society than we've ever been before. We're in a, a place where we're hackable animals and we're being called it straight out by the elite who already know um, who what they want to do with us and it's not nice. Uh, one last point before we move on to the last part of of the speech, because we're almost done here, um, is where he says, most countries don't even fantasize about conquering or annexing their neighbors with the notable (laughs) exception of Russia, he says. Right. But I mean, again, this guy's Israeli, uh, which has been trying since it's uh, before it was created as a state to annex Palestine. Uh, And then there's the whole greater Israel annexation things, the attempts to annex southern Lebanon uh, and annexing, you know, parts of (laughs) uh, the Golan Heights and things like that in Syria, among other things. Right. So, I mean, that this type of conquering and annexing their neighbors, uh, tons of countries have those ambitions. And it's not just Israel, not to pick on Israel, but I'm just bringing up that point because Harari is Israeli and he clearly knows that like. Uh, Israel, his own country, has gone much farther than Russia in terms of conquering and annexing their neighbors in the past mm-hmm. 20 years, right? But yeah, also U.S. Empire, you know, for example, all about conquering, it, even if not, you know, formally. Though in the past, you know, you know, we, uh, the Philippines declared independence and then the U.S. came in and invaded them and made them a U.S. colony instead of a Spanish colony, right? So eventually that type of tactic by U.S. empire, you know, shifted and it, it became about covert regime change through the CIA or CIA fronts installing someone but that's basically conquering a country and annexing them in a sense but you're not doing it overtly right so it still looks like an independent country but who's really in charge um and uh so you know that whole claim is just really silly and it only he only says it that way because he's trying to say he later refers to this as this wonderful situation we now take for granted that we're so used to uh mm-hmm. right Um, so, you know, it's just silly and it shows you that like, he's obviously intelligent enough that he knows that a lot of what he's saying is bullshit, especially here in his solutions pitch. Right. So, um, you know, worth, uh, picking that apart and showing there's no way he actually believes the crap that he's telling you right now. Also, if you look at what the, the idea. This is something I've, I mean, you know about that. I will be releasing in the next week is I've been um, studying a, an event that happened um, heavily involves the World Economic Forum and the Russians in a way that states that maybe we'll hear less of these sentences coming out of globalists from the, the future. Because I think Russia is about to be brought in from the cold in some way, shape or form. Um, and that sort of idea that everybody except for Russia who's trying to dominate the world, that's that's about to be dropped by them because they need everybody on board for this. And if you've noticed, the Russians are really on board for, for everything so far. Right. Good point. All right. So with that, we'll move on to the last bit of the, of the speech. Mm-hmm. The global order is now like a house that everybody inhabits and nobody repairs. It can hold on for a few more years, but if we continue like this, it will collapse and we will find ourselves back in the jungle of omnipresent war. We've forgotten what it's like, but believe me as a historian, you don't want to go back there. It's far, far worse than you imagine. Yes, our species has evolved in that jungle, 
and lived and even prospered there for thousands of years. But if we return there now with the powerful <coughs> new technologies of the 21st century, our species will probably annihilate itself. Of course, even if we disappear, it will not be the end of the world. Something will survive us. Perhaps the rats will eventually take over and rebuild civilization. Perhaps then the rats will learn from our mistakes. But I very much hope that we can rely on the leaders assembled here and not on the rats. Thank you. Oh, man. All right, wow. so there he goes and says it. We can rely on the leaders assembled here. I really hope that you guys, with billions and resources and control of most governments <laughs> and you know market shares in most major industries, will do something about these problems so it's not the rats. Well, what does he really mean by the rats? Well, um, some people, I, I talked about this quote on a, on a podcast and some people said I misinterpreted him and that he wasn't really talking about the rats as being the useless class. But I mean, if you watch the whole thing, it seems to give that indication. But what's really telling is this uh, Orlik Gad Gadiesh lady who's chairing this panel. Um, if we can go back to the video for a second, uh, right after Harari finishes his speech has something to say about the rats that if it, they were just talking about, you know, cockroaches rebuilding after nuclear war, it's going to be the rats that survive. And, you know, like it was just going to be the, the straight up animal. I don't think she'd uh, respond like this. If we can play that really quick. Thank you, Yuval. That was very thought-provoking and challenging introduction and pretty frightening. Uh, let's hope the rats don't get the upper hand. And with that in mind, let me- Yeah, we can, we can stop it there. Let's hope the rats don't get the upper hand, implying that there is a current struggle between the leaders assembled here and the rats. So the rats are already in the game to rebuild civilization since they know it's going to collapse at some point, whole point of the Great Reset, right? is to create yeah. these new systems. So either she's saying, basically, you know, to me this says, the leaders assembled here want to build this new system that Yuval Harari is outlining, or the, rat, or the rats are concurrently pushing to build their own system. Do you really think they're talking about the animal here? And also look at their faces when they talk <laughs> about the rats. You really think they're talking about super rats mm -hmm. right now and uh, not like they're hackable animals? Let, let's let, let i i want to i want to look at one thing the global order at the beginning he says like the global order is now is now not before is now like a house that everybody inhabits and nobody repairs like since when has the global order been repaired since when has there been it's always been a house uh that has holes all over it that's that's the way it's always been and will always be in the future except it'll be um a house which is controlled by a smart house it'll be controlled by ai stuff um it, it, we can hold on for a few more years just a few more years but then if we can collapse you know and then we'll be back into the jungle of omnipresent war which do we know we have never left in the beginning so i mean what he says here is nonsense again it's rubbish i can understand why people would want to believe uh, that you're that he's not talking um referring useless class when he's talking about the rats 
But uh, me, for one, I think you've got to be an idiot not to see what he's saying. Perhaps the rats will eventually take over and rebuild civilization. Perhaps then the rat. Do you think he's saying that maybe this species like the rats will evolve to have arms and speak and they'll look at the work as a human civilization. If you think that you're very stupid in itself, you, I, I don't mean to call you stupid, but you believe you, you, you believe that uh, the rats are going to evolve after us because you've uh, no, you've no Harari just told you. So, I mean, you're, you're going to have to get yourself checked out because he's talking about rats. He's talking about the people who they don't want to be in control and he uses it in amongst that we hope that the leaders assembled here and not the rats can do the job you know the yeah. leaders assembled here and not the rats the, the leaders assembled here the, rats, the elite versus he, the useless class i mean the juxtaposition juxta, uh, juxtaposition i think is pretty obvious and then when she goes on yeah. to say i hope the rats don't give the upper hand that doesn't imply that rats a couple thousand years from now are going to involve uh, evolve sentience and then it's going to be an issue saying we hope they don't get up or, uh, the upper hand implies that this is an ongoing struggle now why this is being said in the beginning of 2020 right and 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 when i said um you, you got to be stupid i think i think i i used a bad word there. i should have said naive you've got to be super naive super duper whooper naive you've got to be naive that it's be off the scale the, these uh, these people they, like i say he's chosen not to speak to the people He's chosen always to speak with the elites, the upper class, mm -hmm. the gatekeepers, the people in control of society. And if you actually look at his um, his words uh, in this speech through uh, the ends of a statement analyst, you'd see that he is part of the elite. He is part of them. He feels like he's part of them. He talks as he's part of them. And when he's referring to the rats, he's not talking to his buddies. He's not talking to himself. He's talking about us. He is talking about the people who they we know they see as rats all along yeah um it's it's one of the most uh it's jaw-dropping the whole thing is pretty jaw-dropping god-like creators um he'll he'll also say in other speak i've heard heard him say recently we'll cover this in the extra bit um how he he talks about um, there's no conspiracy by global leaders to control the world. That's just silly. He's just gone through a whole speech there saying about how <laughs> we've got to be the global leaders to control the world. If the global because... leaders don't control the world, doom and gloom, back to the jungle, digital dictatorship. And the rats, the rats will take and over. Literal hell and rats will take over. Yeah. So don't Wake tell me he's this, not calling. Not on your <laughs> yeah. side. This guy, Yuval Noah Harari, is not one of the people. He will not be one of the useless class. He will not be ever um, down here with the common people. He will always be up there with the elite. He's talking directly to the elite. He's part warning them about what's going to happen benefit not for ours as they're the ones who can do something and he sees them as the leaders assembled here who can they can rely on to potentially change the world and at the same time he's telling people that it's a conspiracy theory to say that the leaders yeah. in the world are trying to change the world yeah unbelievable uh, going back to that point you made harari totally sees himself as part of the elite and that's why when he was talking about earlier you know, there's no philosophers talking about this stuff, but there's him, right? And he's framed as this, as this philosopher of of this whole ideology. And the only guy that's talking about this and this super influential thinker and all of that stuff. And so basically, if there's no philosophers to inform the politicians in the way he lays it out earlier, well, there's really only him. So he's informing the politicians and the world leaders about what must be done and what the problems are and what we need to do and how we have to take Angelic. action. 
He's right. angelic Yuval Noah Harari, the messenger directly from God himself, or maybe just BB, who knows? <laughs> who knows, right? So uh, with that, uh, we'll wrap up this video because uh, it, it did go on for a while. But we uh, both really thought that this speech is really instructive. And the fact that it's even before COVID, look at how so many of these agendas he talks about then have advanced in the past year. And of course, we'll be getting in more to the more recent Davos that's been going on this week and over the, the next couple um, of weeks and months, breaking those down a lot more. But, you know, this is a really good introduction to the elite mindset. This is their philosopher. This is like basically the philosopher and thinker, um, not just of the Great Reset in a way, but also of marketing and selling the Great Reset to the masses and the pseudo intellectual whatever. And, oh, his books are New York Times bestsellers and he must be smart. If so many people like Obama and Zuckerberg love him and all of this stuff, I mean, there's a reason they, they prop, they pop this guy out um, and that he was, you know, speaking, had the most prominent speech really at the last year Davos before all of this stuff for the World Economic Forum, you know, that benefits their agenda goes, goes forward via COVID and other things that happened last year. Right. So it's very interesting to see that they clearly value him and his insights and his opinions and, and what have you. But, you know, a lot of stuff, as we'll see in this this bonus episode that's going to be for for patrons and, and subscribers on, on Rockfin, a lot of this stuff uh, that he talks about in 2020, he's been talking about since 2018, this internal surveillance, you'll be in the gulag this morning if you're secretly angry about the leader's speech and also healthcare, how healthcare was going to be used to get people to buy into the system to give away their privacy. I mean, he's been very open about this. Uh, for years talking to these same people and what do you I mean I, are we really surprised this is what's happening but we have to keep in mind too and I think a critical takeaway from this is that this whole AI arms race narrative that's being used as the justification by these people to create and impose these technologies in our societies is a controlled opposition arm race and it's not uh, real it's being impulsed by money uh, the money impulsing both sides is is the same collective the same group uh, that are creating this arms race, at least superficially, uh, so that, you know, this system gets introduced either way, regardless if China wins or the U.S. wins, right? I mean, the same people are going to win regardless of which country, which nation state wins, wins the war yeah. or whatever. Uh, nation states are a tool for these guys. They've always have been. They always will be. It's an, it's an illusion that they can hide behind. They can do their games. And right. Nobody refers, uh, to, refers to that idea of nation states. As he pointed out, the people with the real power, the people that have all the data and have all the blackmail, too. Right. So it's not really about nation states anymore. And it hasn't been for decades. It's about who controls the blackmail. And now because blackmail is all electronic, who controls the data, which can be used as blackmail and used to train AI algorithms that can control better than the, comp the competitors AI algorithm. But really, I think instead of nation state competition, because of this emphasis on these wealthy high tech hubs, we may see more competition between city states sort of in a throwback to a long time ago than before, yeah, you know, San Francisco competing with Beijing as opposed to U.S. and and China as nation states competing and things like that, especially as we see these moves to smart cities going forward. Yeah, yeah. Everything you say there is completely correct. I think <laughs> we're, we're, we're seeing their agenda move forward. I mean, it's moving forward exactly as they want it to. And I think 2021 is going to be the time when it hits a snag because I'm not sure how many people um, can possibly remain asleep with all of this nonsense going on.
Yeah, I mean, we're getting to a point where if they're being if they're being pretty open that we must take action now, it's obviously going to be incumbent on people that oppose their agenda and the world. There's this vision that he lays out, you know, that we're also going to have to um, become more active as well. And of course, you know, the 2021 Davos agenda, there's a lot to pay attention to and break down there, which is why this isn't just a one-time video. This is going to be a series. Um, we're going to be going over a lot of things in coming videos, including the 2021 announcement before this week's Davos even really started, Klaus Schwab announcing basically how the year's going to go. And we can already see a lot of those narratives and changes taking shape. He says things like COVID is going to be phased out and climate change is going to come back in and that the next pandemic is going to be tied up with climate change. Uh, and they're going to blame the a next more severe pandemic, pandemic two, as Bill Gates called it last year, on uh, ecological collapse and start to bring more of these existential threats, as you've all uh, Harari uh, denotes them. You know, they're going to start fusing together and all become the same existential threat that we can they can all rally around and all of this stuff. But obviously, there's a lot more to what's going on. There's this new push to create this new inclusive capital system, stakeholder capitalism. Uh, you know, and we've had a lot of big names uh, that have been controversial in the past year, like Bill Gates, among others, coming to the World Economic Forum, not to talk about COVID, but to talk about climate change and green energy. And so a lot of these pivots and things that they're saying are going to happen, uh, things like uh, you mentioned earlier, like the cyber polygon exercise and all of this stuff, this coming cyber pandemic, a pandemic of cyber attacks that Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum, uh, you know, predicted uh, and they simulated actually uh, last year, not unlike the COVID crisis. You know, all of that stuff we'll be getting into in next videos. So make sure to subscribe to us either uh, on our uh, Odyssey channel or on Rockfin uh, to catch the rest of these videos. And, you know, some of them, this one's going to be free. Uh, we're going to have a um, one for subscribers. Uh, we're not sure what we're going to do with the future ones yet, but we will see. But make sure to uh, support us if you can. And if not, keep up with our, our content on there. Uh, and uh, that's it for this episode. So thanks for watching. See you later.